welcome to the first episode of Record Revolution, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Neil Daly. Each episode of Record Revolution will hold a microscope up to one specific year in music, from important song and album releases to live performances or other major musical events, with a particular emphasis on how the music of that year influenced us. The title of the show, Record Revolution, has several meanings. Most people think of a revolution as an event that has a profound seismic shift on the status quo, some kind of game-changer. The music of our formative years definitely feels like it's that momentous. In astronomical terms, though, a revolution refers to the length of time it takes a body in space to orbit around the sun one time, the equivalent of a year. But a revolution also refers to a complete spin of a vinyl record. Once upon a time, recordings were measured by the length of time it took for a complete and full rotations. For example, a 33 RPM was 33 rotations per minute. A 45 was 45 rotations. And I'm sure I'm not the only one out there with fond memories of playing all my 33 RPM albums at 45 speed just to mimic the chipmunk sound. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, when we were growing up in DeKalb, Illinois, there was a record store called Record Revolution. It wasn't my primary music source, but it was a solid backup, usually a good place to get bootlegs, demos, live concert recordings, things like that. So we're dropping a little history and a whole lot of nostalgia on y'all, perfectly bundled and gift-wrapped up in one single year that changed music for us. That's Record Revolution, and that's what you're about to hear. This episode, we're talking about... 'd an album there was that parental advisory warning label at the bottom corner this episode is gonna have something like that and this is your uh, advisory for language content warning right now so if you're listening to this episode at work if you listen to this podcast in the car while you're driving your kids yeah maybe turn the volume down a little bit just because uh, we we might get into some uh, salty adult language as this some of the times it's just because we're quoting the the name of a song that includes <laughs> the f word or something like that so this is your uh, your first fair warning that uh, you know you might hear the word fuck or shit or piss or something else along the way as we're going through this yeah so, so be warned you've been stickered <laughs> damn it <laughs> I started, started laughing I had to cough so. All right, um, we've been talking about this, and I'm trying to remember how far back it goes. It's at, oh, least, <laughs> at least a year, like maybe more like two years. Um, but we've been talking about doing a show together, and based on our the interests that we have that really overlap, it was pretty obvious that it was going to be a music-based show. Um, and I will give a little bit of shout-outs to a few other things. Um, Rob Kelly, also on the Fire and Water Network, has his Pod Dylan show. A uh, friend of mine, Diablo Frank, on the Rolled Spine Network, he has an occasional podcast called One Song Each, where he and his guests each talk about one song that was you know important or formative to them. 
Two True Freaks podcast network used to have a show called Long Play where every episode they just picked an album, you know, like the the White Album or, or you know, something else and just like broke it down song by song. And my buddy David A. Gutierrez recommended a show called Pods and Sods. So just in the last couple of years, I've been hearing more music-based podcasts, and it really got me in, in my head. And I was like, all right, Neil, I want to do something like that with you, but what are we going to do? What's going to be different? And we you know, we could have done an entire show based on the Smashing Pumpkins. I think at one point we talked about that. <laughs> I think, um, I think or, we still might. Yeah, we, still, we very well still might. <laughs> um, and at one point, we actually we came up with this idea of – talking about the 90s, of doing an entire series, the 90s. And I, we were going to break it down year by year. So the yeah. first episode, 1990. Second episode, 1991. And go through that decade, like a 10-part podcast series, going through all of the music. Um, it would be really comprehensive. And I was really, really excited for that. Except, <laughs> as we're taking our notes, I'm like, boy, you know, there's a lot of good music in 1990 and 1991 Oh, but really, 1993 is the sweet spot. I really want to get to 1993 <laughs> or 94. And then, and then also looking at like the tail end of the decade, I was like, like the the Britney Spears and NSYNC, the teen bop resurgence really dominated. And there's like, there's a lot of crap in 1999 that I don't want to talk about. So <laughs> we, it just kind of became like, you know, how are we going to do this? And and I, I think I sort of just uh, absorbed a little bit too much the the network's mantra of find your joy. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to waste time. You know, let, let's let's approach every episode like this is the only one we're going to do. So if we were going to talk about one year in the 1990s and what it meant for music, I'm not starting in 1990. You know, let's get to it. Let's, <laughs> right. let's you know, carpe diem. Let's get right into the meat of it. And for us, I, I mean, it was 1993. It was always going to be 1993. It was always going to be. Um, which is not to say, like, if this show is successful, we'll go on. Maybe the next episode will be 1994. Maybe we'll jump back. We'll do 1987. We'll do a year from before <laughs> we were even born, if it was really good. Um, or but... maybe we'll do another 1993. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep on coming back. It's all the same stories, just a different way. So, um, now, so the obvious question then is, why? Why this particular year? And and before we start going through these albums and these songs and what it meant, like, where were you in 1993? Who were you as a person? How did the music hit you and change you? And and why this year? Oh man, wow. Uh, well, you were definitely right that it's all. It was always. It had to be 1993. That much is a given. And I, as profound as this sounds, the person I was at the end of 1993 was not the person I was at the beginning of 1993. I mean, it, the music of '93 was quite literally life changing. And I mean, I mean that use of the word literally. It's like what I heard and what I felt that year in music charted a whole new course for me. It sent me on this like musical odyssey, this journey. That that now decades later is finally paying dividends. I mean, I'd, I, you know, I'd been in a band in, in high school and stuff, and we were, you know, covering Van Halen and Poison and Motley Crue and stuff where every, every song was about sex, drugs, rock and roll, girls, partying, et cetera. You know, fluff pieces at the mm-hmm. time, all you, all you needed was a good rock riff in a flashy solo and lots of hairspray. But um, it was, I don't know, something something changed. And like you, Ryan, I'd always dabbled in journaled in lyrics and prose and poetry and phrasing and just sentences or cool thoughts and stuff like that. Like I always did the same type of thing you did, but never in my life did I marry the two until 1993. It was a weird combination of me suddenly focusing more on song structure and song development than just the things I described prior that I was covering in my rock band. And it was like all of a sudden, 
1993, all these new bands that I that I liked were writing lyrics that actually meant something. And it started a couple years prior, but I don't think it really hit me like over the head like a hammer until 1993. Suddenly it was okay to put your feelings and emotions into a song and 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 the bands that we're about the, the bands that we're about to talk about tonight and and describe made me feel like I could do the same thing. Like like their words were like, "Hey, I write like that." I feel that way and everything changed. And that set me off on, on a new tangent to my artistic and creative life and career. And I've been a musician ever since, you know, I was an actor at that point and I was an actor who dabbled in music and played the guitar and that's it. And, and it sounds weird that although I played music before, I never really referred to myself as a musician and definitely not a songwriter until 1993. And one album in particular, which we'll get to in a bit, changed everything. Yeah, I already know what album it is that you're talking about. <laughs> so for you listeners, you'll have to wait a half an hour. Uh, for me, I mean, it was it was a very different time. I was at a di very different part of my – there were a couple of years between us, obviously. So I was still – I, yeah, I, I was still at home. I was still a kid, you know, kind of becoming a teenager at this time, sort of developing my own tastes in music and – uh, TV and entertainment and everything like just kind of coming into my own around this time, you know, just venturing out and and this is the time when I'm really starting to get into like MTV and starting to be a little bit more selective about my tastes, but so much of like my my music tastes like in the beginning of like shaping and everything, especially at this time period, it was filtered from you. I was getting mm. <laughs> the music that you were listening to. You were passing the stuff on to me going, "You have to listen to this. You have to check this out and everything." So, my introduction to you know, the whole grunge rock era, you know, that, that whole, like, you know, changeover, because I was, you know, I was following you and, like, you, with the band that you were playing with and all the songs that you knew from, yeah. you know, Motley Crue and Van Halen and Guns N' Roses, you know, I was right. really into those. And then you started showing me, hey, there's this entire different kind of rock. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, like, what's so different about it? And you're like, well, it's not, like, fun. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not, like, party rock. It's, like, <laughs> life sucks. <laughs> and, like, even if you're, like, a Midwest kid from the suburbs growing up in a, you know, kind of middle-class, you know, background and everything like that, it's, like, there's still a reason to be depressed and unhappy, and there's all these, like... But it wasn't, like, you know, like, the, the heavy death metal. It was this sort of rebel without a cause type of like grunge like yeah, garage yeah. rock and everything like that and we'll get into it with like some of the lyrics of these bands and everything that I just I, I it was it hit me at this at this perfect time when I was starting to have more of an awareness that these were options and everything and then of course at the same time, there seemed to be this this cultural split, and I saw it in school, like with where my friends were going in terms of the way they acted, the way they dressed, the things they did. And it was either the grunge alternative rock scene or it was the gangster rap scene and the hip hop. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize you could pick both. I mean, you, you had the foresight of you know being older. You're like, you don't have to choose one or the other. Um, but I thought you had to pick one, so I picked you know the white kids, um, and I, I went with more the the grunge rock scene. And so that was kind of me. This this hit me just as I was developing my tastes, and because a lot of it was like filtered through you. Now I will I will concede and I will cheat as we talk about some of these albums. There's some of the songs and some of these things that really had a profound impact on me. I'm including them because they came out in 1993, so they were important for that year. Some of the songs that we're talking about 
a lot of them, in fact, I did not hear in 1993. Sure. Some of yeah. them, it might have been a year later, you know, as it was filtered through, you know, a single came out or something like that. Or you gave me a mixtape based on a couple of these bands or something like yeah. that, and I heard it in 94 or 95. Some of these I didn't get until, like, I was, uh, you know, almost out of high school or something. We're talking about, like, you know, six, seven years later. Um, but they, they came out in 1993, so they're going to be included in this group. You know, what's funny, too, is you mentioned uh, <laughs> how you didn't have to choose one or the other. I think it was right around 93. This is so bizarre now looking back on it that the musical styles were so diverse between, like you said, the gangster rap scene and then the grunge rock scene. But they both wore flannels. They <laughs> both wore like Dickies garage workman pants. And they both wore like Adidas indoor soccer shoes. Like it was the weirdest thing. Like I can literally see the Beastie Boys. Snoop Dogg and James Eha from the Pumpkins wearing the exact same outfit <laughs> playing a show. It was so bizarre. The, the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> and the, the musical styles and the, and the delivery mechanisms may have been vastly different, but when you break it down, a lot of the hip-hop and the rap of this time, it was a new version of punk. It was Yes. It was protest oh, music. Yeah. It was a music of rebellion. It was a music of challenging the system and showing a kind of anger from you know systemic abuse that had been shown you know in in like you know that that's what rock and roll has always kind of been about. And now we're just seeing a new version of it that is a uniquely American movement, which I always kind of like think about uh, with you know hip hop is as being like one of the signature American art sure. forms. It, you know, it didn't spring forth out of, you know, other type of art forms from, you know, Europe or, or other cultures or something like that. So, right, yeah. Right. And, and, and I mean, that is something that they both like, whether it's rock or rap at this time in particular, it was both coming from this place of anger and and shouting and trying to like be heard and giving a voice to a, a otherwise unknown or oppressed group. So, yeah, it was, it was really weird. I mean, I don't want to go too far on this, you know, I want to get into the albums and stuff, but you're absolutely right about it being something it was like, I, it was almost like it was every man had a voice suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I say man, I mean, man or woman, right. but like everybody had a voice suddenly. So it's like the idols were no longer driving Lamborghinis, with like super expensive clothes and supermodel girlfriends, our idols were the kids next door in the garage that were, you know, it was like they were the ones standing up and saying, hey, we want, you know, all of a sudden every out. I mean, this is I think this is why it caught on. So so why it became such a huge movement was because everybody had a voice suddenly. All right, we're going to take a short break to play a promo for one of the podcasts I mentioned before, but we will be back in a minute to talk about our most influential albums of 1993. Stick around. I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. Okay. Are you going to make a, a new intro for this? I'm here to talk about one song, so here I go. Welcome to One Song Each. This podcast is going into a song. Whoever's with us, but usually the three of us, Diablo Frank. Illegal Machine, Mr. Fix-It. We're going to take a few minutes to talk about a song. One song. Each of us will bring one song to the table. So we're just going to pick a song and talk about it. Choose a random song without consulting the others and without picking a theme. 
no themes. Except for the times when we'll pick a theme. Well, we'll, we'll tell you if we're going to pick generally speaking. Sometimes we talk about the artist's career overall. Sometimes we talk about a particular album. You can either be technical or more intimate. There's no prescribed link. There's no prescribed content. Randomly pulled from our brains. Do you play the song itself? And we play the song for each other and then comment with a story, an anecdote. The actual meaning of the song or more history. Either what the song means to them or a life experience that that was the soundtrack to. What it triggers in your memory. This is a World Spine podcast. That's one song each, and it's a very interesting concept. Rock and roll and drift away. All right. As we look at the specific music and the songs and the albums from the year 1993, we've broken this up into a couple of different categories. Uh, the first one, which we're probably going to spend the most amount of time on, is the major albums. Now, we have compiled a list between the two of us, and some of these are, you know, a lot of these are shared between us. We yeah. both have love for yeah. this. But there are a few that are more specific to you, a few that are more specific to me. But between the two of us, we've got 13 major albums from this year that had some kind of imprint on our lives. Yep. Um, after that, we've got 13 more kind of minor albums that we're just going to give a few quick shout outs to. These were just, you know, albums that we like that we want to highlight or something. You know, maybe they were like, it, it kind of in, informed the way I listened to music or something about it at that time. And uh, we'll explain more as we get to that. And we chose 13 because we wanted to do one for every month of the year, if you include Smart. <laughs> Lousy Smart weather. <laughs> Um, and then at the end, we've got a few other just kind of like random singles or songs that I felt like including now, some of these I really love. Some of these I think are crappy songs, but they were kind of <laughs> significant for that year. They, they like left a lasting impression on me. Sure. Um, and then at the end, just before we go, uh, we've got a few other musical events and highlights that we just kind of wanted to touch on to make it know that the year wasn't all about us. There were other kind of important <laughs> events. Um, and then we'll kick it. So... Getting to the beginning, um, and we're skipping the month of March. We're also skipping the month of January. Um, for our major albums, we had two released in the month of February. Pablo Honey by Radiohead mm -hmm. and Strictly for My N-I-G-G-A-Z by Tupac. So um, I actually think the Tupac album came out first. What do you want? And this one, okay. this was one of your picks. So, what did you think about Tupac? Yeah, this was one of my picks. It's, it's so funny that we, you know, we've already. 1993 saw a whole lot of of important releases in both grunge rock or whatever American American rock and and hip hop, and Tupac was. At this point, uh, you know, uh, well, first of all, I want to point out how special I think it is that you actually spelled out the title because uh, this, you know, rather than just saying it and further censoring us from <laughs> iTunes, uh, we should point out that Tupac himself was very adamant about making sure that that was an acronym that people knew. Uh, those initials in his mind stood for never ignorant, getting goals accomplished. And that was something that he really stood for because kind of, con you know, surprisingly, Tupac got lumped into the whole gangster rap movement. And he, you know, did, did a lot of collaborations with that with that 
movement as well. So it's rightly so that he kind of got sucked up in the wash in the wake of of gangster rap. But he always would have con- he would have rather not considered himself a gangster rap. He was more wanted to be more. Um, he he viewed himself more as uh, like an activist, uh, a little bit more like a public enemy who was around at the late eighties, early nineties, and stuff. Tupac was more about politics and and fighting the system and whatnot, not just you know black on black crime kind of thing, which he spoke to because it was prevalent and it was around him. But he got a lot of his power from his mom, Afini Shakur, who was a Black Panther. So anyway, but, uh, you know, this this album kind of struck me. I was I, my introduction to Tupac started back in Digital Underground, which right around like the, like I think it had to be 89 or 90, whatever it was, when the Humpty Dance came out. Digital Underground for like a brief moment in time was about as big as it gets in hip hop. It was the most played song, danceable song, party song you could imagine. Tupac was uh, a member of Digital Underground, but just never really got a whole lot of opportunities to perform. Uh, so they took him on tour. He was a hype man kind of thing, you know, you know, doing a lot of that. But eventually, Shock G, the founder of Digital Underground, gave Tupac his own. Said, "Okay, well, I'm going to give you a couple beats. I'll, I'll let you take a, a verse." And he did the he did same old song. He he actually got to rap in that. The point is, Tupac had already released a solo album. His his debut album was Tupacalypse Now, which came out I believe ninety, maybe it was ninety one. Um, but strictly for my N-I-G-G-A-Z, uh, was a, a, literally a milestone album for him and a breakthrough. And now, I mean, he's universally known now as one of the greatest rappers of all time, one of the greatest artists, poets. I mean, it, it's no surprise to me that the things I saw when I first heard this album and, the, in, and got into the lyrics and listened to specific songs, the things I saw in him are what apparently everybody else saw as well. Because he started getting movie offers, he started getting, you know, he wrote books, he wrote poetry, he got things published, and and whatnot. But yeah, I, you know, I could go on and on and talking about this, but it was it was important. There were a couple, of, you know, he did on the album. He featured Ice Cube, featured Ice T, uh, featured Tretch, who we'll get to later on from Naughty by Nature. Um, but yeah, this was this was a milestone album for me in 1993 and it's what you'll see as we go forward in this podcast is a lot of the artists that we're going to talk about are still relevant today Mm -hmm. yeah and like this was one that i didn't get into until much later um uh, it took me another decade really before i started looking at the hip-hop from the early 90s um there was much more of a remove for me even though you were telling me hey you should do you should listen to this this is really good um i I was a little bit more hesitant to it and i think it was just sort of i i saw him i saw the the outward appearance i saw the uh, the Mm -hmm. movie juice i think came out the year before this um and the sort of aggressiveness of his look was to me, I, I mean, white Midwest kid, I think I was a yeah. little bit turned off by it. I was like, it was I, off-putting. I, yeah, sure. I was like, I, I don't know if I get this. Uh, I'm not sure. And it took me a little while, but once I got into it, and it, it was actually, you know what, it was after he died when I actually started right. looking at him and right. studying him a little bit more, and I saw his poetry, and mm-hmm. I saw like what he composed that wasn't put to music, that wasn't put to lyrics, but then what he do and the way he could turn a phrase, and the way he could just kind of like you know just turn turn music on a di- on a different spin. It was just it was really incredible. Um, so yeah, while while this album didn't have the same effect on me, I certainly get what it meant for that year, what it meant for the the genre of music that we're talking about, uh, and how and how prolific it was. 
Yeah, and I, I I wouldn't even say that this is my favorite Tupac album, but it would it laid the foundation for my absolute putting this 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 person on a pedestal as mm-hmm. one of the greatest artists mm-hmm. of of all time. And, and and you know the last thing I'll mention is that us if you take away all the aggressive thug life raps and all these anti politics and and stuff. I mean, he had a rap about Dan Quayle who was vice president yeah. at the time and stuff. But you know, this album also featured "Keep Your Head Up." And I get around, which were, you know, became two anthemic songs that were not advocating violence and 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 danger and drugs and and guns. And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and I came from a woman. I wonder why we take from our women, why we rape our women, do we hate our women? I think it's time to kill for our women, time to heal our women, be real to our women. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies. But keep your head up. Uh, 1993, he also appeared in the movie Poetic Justice with Janet Jackson, which yes, we'll come did. back to later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just an absolute artist. Fell in love with him in 93. Yeah. Um, the other one from that <clears throat> month, uh, Radiohead, I did not fall in love with at the time. It would take a couple of years later. Um, but certainly, right off the bat, I remember hearing the song Creep, and I remember thinking, I was like, I've never heard anything like this. This is just a, a different type of sound. And like, even... Even amongst the other, you know, like kind of alternative rock songs, it, there was something different about it. Oh, yeah. Um, and now, I mean, I, I didn't really get into Radiohead until right before OK Computer came out, which was 1996. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got that. Um, I loved it. I, like, I only experimented with playing guitar very briefly, but I learned to play a few songs. Um, and then I got The Benz, which was their second album that came out after Pablo Honey, and I loved that album. Eventually went back. So this, the first one was actually the third Radiohead album that I got. And it was my least favorite, but there's still a lot of songs on this that I like. Um, the second single, actually, Stop Whispering, um, it was really, really good. And there's the penultimate song on the album, Lurgy, uh, is one of my favorite <laughs> yeah, Radiohead yeah. tracks. But that, yeah, that I, I still, even though it's never been one of my favorite Radiohead tracks, I do think there's something about Creep, their, their first, their breakout single from this one, that is so driving and kind of hauntingly melodic. Uh, I mean, it, it's a, there was a reason the song has been covered a lot from everybody from like, boys choir groups like the the trailer for the movie the social network used <laughs> yeah. an acapella choir group co- uh, cover of this song uh they, there's just something about it it's like a mind worn thing that gets in your head um and it's just so yeah like even though it took me a few years to get into radio i remember that song just like hit me and i was like there's something special about this uh, that, yeah. that I'm gonna remember. So, yeah, the reason I the, the reason I'm including Pablo Honey from my list has more to do with that this was their breakout, but their later work would really I mean I, I would get into them hardcore in '96, '97. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I'm gonna steal a page out of your book right now because. I didn't discover Radiohead until you did. Mm-hmm. You actually got me into Radiohead because, I mean, I'd heard of them. And I think I probably at some point had even heard Pablo Honey. And, and back in the early 90s, too, the, the L.A. alternative radio station, K-Rock, somehow it was always granted access to play anything they wanted off albums, which people don't do now. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have to play just the singles. that They were just playing everything. So uh, I don't know how they got licensed to do that. But that was, So I, I definitely heard of some of the radio 
Radiohead songs and, and whatnot before that, but it was re- I think your interest in them really kind of made me go back and retroactively listen to the early stuff again. And yeah, you're absolutely, I, th- I think it's, I, I would even venture to guess that having not discussed this with you prior, I think that we would probably have some of the same uh, some of the same favorite songs from that album too. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with what you said too, like a song like Stop Whispering. Yep. Uh, I, it was kind of weird, like what we know now in 2019, listen, listen back, I mean, it was almost like they foreshadowed the emo sound mm-hmm. that would come a decade later. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was this like emotional high voice with like just thundering guitars, but catchy melodies in a way that, in a way that like, there was something about the way that they did their songs. I mean, I remember from that album, there were songs like Vegetable, which was like written in 5-4 time. So it, the musical scale, time signature was slightly off. And mm-hmm. it felt like, okay, something doesn't make it fit. And then the chorus was, or anyone can play the guitar, which was, I believe, a single off the album. Yeah, 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 it was. That was weird. The, the, it changed tempos between the verse was slower and then the choruses were faster you know i mean it was it was they were such a weird they had such a weird way of being alternative without and or making alternative catchy without doing standard thing it was like everything they did seemed wrong and it was like the way this band kind of rocks and then you know and what what I found interesting about like Tom's Tom York's voice and which led me later on I would f- later get into these offshoots of like the Smashing Pumpkins that were bands like Catherine or Sleeping at Last and then even the Silver Sun Pickups yeah, which yeah, came yeah. you know later they were all influences of Radiohead so there was something about when you got me into this band and started listening back and I agree I, I think the Benz was fantastic but Pablo Honey there's there's a lot there. Because Radiohead is known for being an experimental band. I mean, right, they, right. They, but it's rare that a band comes out of the box like that. You know, you know, it's like you sometimes you have to have some clout and some credibility to be able to go into a record label and say, this is what we want to do. And Radiohead <laughs> somehow got around it. They did. They made one of the most experimental rock records ever for their debut. <laughs> I think you can probably draw a path from Pablo Honey to the My Chemical Romance and 30 yeah. Seconds to Mars and some of those. Sure, yeah. I think you can see that, yeah. All right, moving on to the next month, the month of March, we have an entry from The Cranberries, the album Everybody Else is Doing It, So Why Can't We? Why was this on your list? This was on my list because it, it was it was a really interesting time for for music where I started to discover female-led groups. And I don't want to say they're girl groups because that's, first of all, that's disingenuous and insulting to girls. But these were these were not groups made up, comprised completely of girls, but there were a lot of female-fronted uh, alternative rock bands. And there was, I think I had earlier discovered, uh, do you remember the band The Sundays with mm-hmm. Harry Wheeler? Yeah. They had Here's Where the Story Is. Yeah. There were a couple a couple things like that that had come out. And we'll, trust me, in 90, we'll go forward in this podcast and talk more about female-fronted rock bands as we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. But this was a very, very interesting album. And I remember it had singles for those of you that aren't that aren't familiar, it had the singles "Dreams," uh, "Linger," which was probably their biggest hit at the time, uh, "Sunday," and "Pretty," and a couple of these one-word titles. But the album felt very much, and this is just to me, but I remember hearing the album, and it felt very much like an indie movie soundtrack. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, it was mm-hmm. very atmospheric. Lyrics were a lot of times kind of muddled into the mix of the song. 
but it was soothing. It was like, uh, you said this about the previous, about Pablo Honey. Something about Dolores O'Riordan's voice was haunting mm-hmm. and kind of, it sucked you in and made you like want to hear more about what she said. And then, and later, I mean, this was my introduction into like heritage rock, like I- Irish rock kind of thing, which right, I'd never right. discovered before. Years later, I'd become a fan of the cores mm-hmm. uh, who are very, very influenced by this. But I would put this on the list just because this was probably the lo- in, in this album in particular in 93 probably launched my wanting to learn more about female fronted rock bands and holding them on the exact same level and holding them up to the same level as any guy that can do it hence the title of the album everybody else is doing it why can't we that's the way i was like yes okay i'm gonna get to that that whole idea of like the female fronted band we've got a few in like the next section um that i kind of like lumped together because i think i think actually you gave me a mixtape around this time it might have been like 94 95 of all female fronted or female led groups and like rock bands like i remember like the sundays was on it they had that oh my god that gorgeous version the cover of rolling stones wild horses um, which that on its own might be my favorite rolling stones song and the sunday's version is better that's that's saying something but yeah, no, I remember, and, and I yeah, I'm right there too. And yeah, I I think I really got into the Cranberries with their next album, the one that after this that had Ode to My Family and Zombie. Yeah, um, yeah. But I definitely I remember hearing Linger, and yeah, like everything you said about like the the sound of her voice and how atmospheric it is. Like it's it's so rare that you hear like especially such a strong accent when it bleeds into the ly- the vocal right. delivery where it's like. You know, you listen to the Beatles or like the Rolling Stones or whatever, and you can't always hear like the accent in the lead singer voice or something. But like right. with this, it's like you definitely knew it's like, wow, this is a very <laughs> strong Irish lilt that is like you're, like overpowering, but it's also soothing and, and kind of like just like like rolls over you like the tide. And it's just she had that capacity with her voice, and and the music was just an extension of that. And so yeah, it was yeah. really really good. I, yeah, I, I, this album like didn't have the same effect on me, but I definitely I get it now, and I would I would definitely include them, in, especially because of the later albums and everything after. Yep, this. yep, yeah. agreed, so. agreed. All right, so the next one from the April release, uh, and this was probably like the first one that we're getting to, where I was in there for the ground floor, <laughs> uh, and this album is "Get a Grip" by Aerosmith. <laughs> the thing about this one is. This album came out, I think, the same time the Beavis and Butthead animated series, the, the cartoon that started off as part of like Liquid Television mm. and then became oh, their God, own yeah. little show or whatever. Beavis and Butthead had an album called the Beavis and Butthead Experience. You know, because I was you know, young and like, they, because it was just two teenage idiots, you know, watching music videos and everything and saying, this sucks or this is cool. I was like, yeah, I, I get it. Like, this is, <laughs> this is hitting me right where I live. Um, so. I got this album, and it, you know, it had like a Primus song. It had like a, a, a Sir Mix-a-Lot song. Like Monster Mac was on this CD. There was like a novelty version of um, "I Got You, Babe" with Cher and Butthead doing a duet. <laughs> it was this incredible thing. But like as I was listening to it, the one song that I listened to more than any other that I really, really liked was this Aerosmith song. And I knew yeah. of Aerosmith as this like band from the seventies that you know Dad might yeah. have listened to or everything like that. And I was like, really like I was like I, I didn't think of them as like a, a current presence or being relevant. But I was like, this song I think it was called Deuces Are Wild. It was incredible. I just I listened to this and I think Dad heard me play the song again and again and again. So he actually got 
got me the Aerosmith Greatest Hits album, um, which mm-hmm. at a time, you know, like probably was released in like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, yeah. it had Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way. And No, I it, think their Greatest Hits album came out in like the 70s. <laughs> you know, I'm probably, probably true. Um, the CD was probably pressed in the late Yeah, yeah right. But yeah, so he, he gave me that. And then at the same time, uh, our mutual friend JT got this album. It was like they came back. Yes. And they came back hardcore. Like this album had like five or six singles, I think, um, yeah. from Eat the Rich, Living on the Edge, and then I think the, the glorious trifecta of the Alicia Silverstone trilogy. Yep. Which was Crying, which is just yep. Alicia Silverstone and Stephen Dorff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Amazing with Alicia yep. Silverstone and one of the London brothers, Jeremy or Jason. Yeah, don't, I don't get me started about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think that probably the one that most people remember the most was Crazy because that was the breakout of Liv Tyler. It was Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler, Stephen Tyler's daughter, in the yeah. same video. And everyone was like, holy, who is this woman? Yes, um, yeah. So I think Cryin' was the first one, and I think that was like MTV's Song of the Year or Video of the Year or something. And then Crazy was like everybody knew that one because of Liv Tyler. I actually think the middle song, Amazing, is my favorite song on the album. And it's the mm-hmm. one that kind of gets forgotten. But yeah, it was it was just this really cool experience to, to be there when this band that I knew had decades of history and was relevant when, you know, Dad was young – and now they're back, and it's not a novelty. It's not they're coming back for their reunion tour. They're back on MTV. They're winning awards at the you know the MTV awards and everything. This is cool. This is hip. And I was like, I'm right there for it. It was this really weird experience that I just I hadn't seen anything before that, but it was great. And I mean, I listened to this album last summer just like on a whim. I was like, this holds up. I still love all of these songs. Yeah, I would. What, what's interesting, about, and again, the difference between our our age gap was, you know, I remember hearing about, you know, obviously this Aerosmith was more like Dad's era kind of thing, but I remember hearing about the band Aerosmith and what a joke they had become. I had heard about, you know, the drug use on stage and the alcoholism and all this stuff, and Steven Tyler falling off the stage into the crowd and passing out during a song. So, I, you know, there was a lot of like Aerosmith, the band had kind of lost lost the luster of being a cool 70s rock band they'd become just an embarrassment to a certain extent and so for for these guys to come back and kind of reinvent themselves like 100 completely reinvent themselves reinvent the wheel and come back and be able to write and record uh you know catchy pop tracks mm-hmm. with a little bit of flavor i mean steven tyler's still got his same swag no matter what but you know it was it was like almost a completely different band mm-hmm. yet all the founding members were still there the same five were coming out and taking the stage every night. And, you know, when when other bands from that era, with the amount of drugs and embarrassment and tabloid fodder that they had at the time, these bands would have fallen by the wayside long ago. And this band came back. And like you said, they came back with a vengeance and became a staple of MTV of the 90s. I mean, it was you. you I mean, if they were a part of TRL, as long as I can remember. And. And yeah, yeah, like like you said, I mean, there's the holy trifecta, the trinity of, of videos, and then you know things like that. The, one of the songs, "Shut Up and Dance," was mm-hmm. later would be featured in Wayne's World Two the following year, even though it was it came out before that. And a little bit of trivia for you right here. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. "Shut Up and Dance" was co-written by Jack Blades, who was the bass player singer of Night Ranger, who okay. did sis- <laughs> Sister Christian and whatnot. So it was like Stephen Tyler was kind of calling in his musical favors at the time and whatnot. So. <laughs> And Jack Blades at the time, you know, he went off and did Damn Yankees with uh, Tommy Shaw from Sticks and all this stuff. So there were a lot of there was a lot of good music being shared at the time. 
but I mean, this was, I'll give you credit for being a part of like, you know, for catching on right away when they kind of debuted, even if it took Beavis and Butthead to get you into them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still think I, this album, this, this album, as, as does their next couple, like Permanent Vacation and mm-hmm. a, a couple of following albums, not only do they hold up because the recordings and the, and the masters hold up today, but when you look back, if you look back at what they went through to get to where they are, it's, it's amazing no pun intended for the song but it's amazing that they actually survived and and got bigger the second time around you know there was there was a they had a they had a either a song or an album or something i think it was called nine lives yeah and that's that's very much a testament to the band Moving on then, we got two different albums that came out in June. 14 Songs by Paul Westerberg. This is one of my picks. Um, And this is one of those things where I'm always kind of like, it surprises me that I got really into Paul Westerberg and you didn't because Mm -hmm. the way I got into him (laughs) was the soundtrack to Singles. Yeah. The movie Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie, came out in 1992 and I remember you like showing me that soundtrack. And again, like this is right around the same time, the same era. You know, we're we're discovering all these bands, like what we're going to be talking about a little bit later, like Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins. Like the soundtrack to singles had Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Alice in Chains, I think Soundgarden, and a bunch of all these other like like acts from the time. It was like it felt like a super group. It was like the Justice League on an album. Wow, but but again, it was like weird. Like I, I had all of these songs that I loved, like from these other bands, but the two songs I listened to more than any other were these more kind of clean cut pop rock songs by this guy, Paul Westerberg. And he yeah. did the, he did the album's theme waiting for somebody. And then another, like a single from it called dyslexic heart. Great song. And I love both of these songs. And, and it was weird. Like they had this feel that like, it was definitely like rock and punk infused, but it felt very, very like non controversial. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. I almost wonder, like, like in a different world, he could have had kind of the same parallel like life as a band like the Goo Goo Dolls. Like, they kind of like could have or- inhabited the same kind of space in terms of like fandom and and who kind of they they marketed to because it felt... yeah it was PG grunge yeah yeah it's sort of like <laughs> yeah that might be might be an okay way to say it but yeah um, so I liked those songs and now years later after 1993. You know, I'm I'm looking around for like, I, I like these songs and I want to hear more. And it, actually, it might have been after the movie "Can't Hardly Wait." So mm. we're talking now. May, this might have been like 1998. The movie "Can't Hardly Wait" had the song "Can't Hardly Wait," which is by The Replacements. And I'm looking at the yep. liner notes. I was like, "Oh, Paul Westerberg <laughs> was the lead singer and songwriter for for The Replacements." So I'm like, "Okay, at this point, I've got three great songs by this guy. I need to learn a little bit more about him." So I went to the stores, and I think it was probably not Record Rev, but Downtown Discs, the other major music store from the Junction area. Um, that we can talk about some other time. We could do a whole special on the Junction. <laughs> yeah, the um, show is called Record Revolution, though, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Stay on brand. Stay on brand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they had one Paul Westerberg album. It was this 14 songs. I picked it up and I listened to it. And again, I, I really dug it. Like the first three songs, uh, the, it starts off with a song called Knocking on Mine, which he performed on SNL one time. 
The second song is called Glimmer of Light. It's a really beautiful song. Like, the lyrics kind of hit me in this very personal way the first time I heard it. This nostalgia, like a pining for an old love type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, there's, there's like uh, other great songs on that. Now, I'm not going to say all 14 of them are winners, but... There's, there's a good a good handful of them, and it certainly, like, it opened me up, so I started looking at some of his stuff. Like, when I got to college, I started looking at more of the replacements music and some of his yeah, other yeah. things. Um, he he did uh, an album with a group called Grandpa Boy, and all of that made me sort of build my own Paul Westerberg mix, you know, like my playlist and everything like that, and a lot of it came from this. So, yeah, I, I definitely, I like this album, and, and he, as an artist in particular, kind of, like, shaped some of my, my tastes from this era. Well, here's the, here's what's funny, because again, this goes back to you know we're we're doing a very give and take here of sharing of musical influences and stuff. It wasn't really all me influencing you, because again, this was and first of all, you said everything that needs to be said about the single soundtrack, just absolute groundbreaking, you know, I mean, life changing. It was it was fantastic, but you're right about the fact that I hadn't really you know I mean I heard this I like dyslexic heart. But nothing about that album made me want to go visit Paul Westerberg outside of the soundtrack, whereas the other bands made me want to dive into him. It was almost like I, I, I liked more of the dirty grunge, the more underground grunge, whereas you were kind of skating, the, skating with the Saturday afternoon version of it, so to speak. And this would come back later in 1998 with Dizzy Up the Girl, you introduced me to the Goo Goo Dolls. Mm-hmm. And I had heard of them before when they were a punk band and they weren't very good. But, <laughs> but, but you kind of got me to listen to that very, very polished, very complete album. And then, okay, this is really cool. So I went back then at the time and then got back into, and I've seen the Goo Goo Dolls probably half a dozen times in person now. You know, that's one of my better bands that I like and, and Johnny Resnick as a songwriter. But Goo Goo Dolls did a VH1 Storytellers. Uh, I want to say it had to be late 90s. It wasn't even 2000 yet. So it had to be 98, 99. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Resnick, d- during one of the stories, talked about his hero was Paul Westerberg of The Replacements. And he wanted him to, he called him up one time and they they, they like shared stories about, you know, he said like, you know, how do you know when you're a good songwriter? And Paul Westerberg told him, he goes, you'll never know. You know, you, know, you never know. You just keep doing it. And um, But Johnny wanted to record with him. And so they did, uh, Paul Westerberg co-wrote a Goo Goo Dolls song called We Are The Normal, which was on, uh, one of their earlier albums. And I think it's very interesting because again, I'm, I'm crediting you, your musical influences all kind of, it's like, if you threw them in a blender, they're going to pour out the same type of sound every time because the replacement, you know, the Paul Westberg, I got, okay, I can understand. And then Johnny Resnick and the Goo Goo Dolls, I can kind of understand. And when I listen back to the stuff now, Paul Westerberg, he reminded me a lot of the leads, Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs. Another one of my favorite bands. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I remember, you know, when when he was remember when they did the the backbeat band yep. and they all kind of yep. threw together and that was that was first of all an awesome, awesome. Oh, I, actually, I actually looked up to see if that came out in 1993. I thought it did. <laughs> I thought it was going to be on this one, but the backbeat soundtrack that, that would have put off. this podcast over the over the edge. I honestly, I feel like now we just let down our audience. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but it was. But the point is, like, you know, these are all very, very specific tastes that sound. I can understand why you liked all of them. Because of the similarities between all of them, it, your taste is very specific, and they all match that. And you kind of got me in once you introduced me. I mean, this Paul Westerberg thing and the Backbeat Band, and, and which I saw the movie, and I love that. But Afghan Wigs, and then 
but getting these guys together, you know, influencing the Goo Goo Dolls because they were influenced by the replacements and all this stuff. It's a very weird six degrees of separation of all these bands that I think Paul Westerberg kind of had his finger on the pulse of a lot of that coming sound. And you found him before I did. I'll give you credit. You know, it might have just been because of the fact that it was the song during the opening credits of that movie. That was the reason I kept on listening to it. But yeah. <laughs> It could be. It could be. You, you, you certainly might have fallen asleep after the first ten minutes the first time. So. <laughs> no, I couldn't. I could never fall asleep during Matt Dillon's performance in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Touch me, I'm Dick. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the song, has, you know, the the song has a lot of meanings. You know, it's not just like I'm Dick and you can touch me, but it's I, I think it could go either way. <laughs> yeah, parental parental advisory, folks. Explicit lyrics. <laughs> I want to know if Cameron Crowe scripted that scene or if that was just Matt Dillon riffing. But oh man, <laughs> either you know what, whoever came up with that is brilliant. Yeah. All right. Still in the month of June, another album. Unplugged by Neil Young. This is the uh, the album version of Neil Young's MTV Unplugged performance. Now, Neil Young is Dad's favorite artist, um, and you know certainly we grew up hearing this music. Yeah. Um, Whether we liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think I liked it a lot more than you did because um, I ended up seeing him live. Like I I saw Neil Young live like '96 or '97 with. Dave Matthews band opening for him. Wow. There was actually there were two opening bands. It was the Gin Blossoms, then Dave Matthews band, and then Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Um, <laughs> and I remember telling my friends, "Oh yeah, I'm going to see Neil Young." And they were like, "Oh okay." I'm like, "And Dave Matthews band is opening." And they're like, "Seriously?" And they're like going crazy for that. Um, but yeah, this is um, I, this was like the first Neil Young album that I I actually listened to because. I think just the fact that it was branded, it was the it was the MTV connection, yeah. and that was such a big deal. Like that was such a, a part of my life that if he was on MTV, he wasn't old school. He wasn't like old fashioned rock. This was relevant. This this was meaningful. This yep. I, I had to give it a chance. And I also think maybe a little bit later, this was also the time when Neil Young performed with Pearl Jam at like one of those award shows. Like they were like the backup band around him. So I was like, yep. okay, you know, he's grandfathered in. He's cool. I, I can. I, I have permission to like this now um but yeah i i really dig this album like the the live versions that he has of like pocahontas and this version of like a hurricane is beautiful oh, um yeah obviously songs like the needle and the damage done and helpless which are gorgeous songs anyway and this is just really good versions the second to last song long may you run which was i think a csny song mm. um but just very very Maybe good it made, that might have even been buffalo springfield Maybe it was. I think, yeah. I, I think Helpless was CSNY, but you're right. Long May You Run might have been Buffalo Springfield, even. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I can. You're, everything you said about this is right. It's it's very funny that your, your intro to this album, my my influence, and ironically, I think Neil Young was probably both of our first concerts, just you know, a decade apart. I was dragged <laughs> along to <laughs> Neil Young probably more than one than I care to remember. But I was also very adamant at my time with my musical taste was just I you have to rebel against your parents' music no matter what. You know, that's just what you do. So you know, I grew up being heavily influenced by Neil Young and Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan, but it was my role as a teenage kid to hate them because my dad liked them. So <laughs> right. that's, that's just what you do. So I, I kind of just wouldn't endorse the Neil Young brand until, like you said, until other artists, you know, the, the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jams and all the stuff, when they started endorsing him as the godfather of grunge rock, then it was like, wait a minute. All right. Is, is suddenly now, is it going to be cool to like Neil Young? This is this guy <laughs> that I like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. But that, that kind of turned it around for me. And then it was one of those weird things when this happened with a lot of artists from our play our childhood playlists that dad and mom played all the time you know you know, like all of a sudden i would pop in a you know i remember when matthew sweet did cortez the killer mm-hmm. and, and all of a sudden i heard and i like knew every word to the song and i'm going how the hell do i know that <laughs> like it's just one of those things has this just been in the background playing so many times that i know it's almost like muzak kind of thing you know <laughs> so neil young was just always there and always prevalent now to come full circle to this album this unplugged album First of all, the coolest thing about this is I have a personal connection to this album, which I don't know if you're aware of. Maybe you are. Maybe you heard the story. But the bass player on the album's name was Tim Drummond. Ah. And there, yep, Tim Drummond and myself and Jason Saul, of all people, um, hung out at the Barrel on Van Nuys Boulevard in Sherman Oaks multiple occasions and drank beers with Tim Drummond. And Tim Drummond was Neil Young's bass player. And he told and he was like, I mean, this guy was just great. I could sit there and just he could do storytellers all night long by himself. He's a very, very good, famous session musician that always played, but played with Neil Young quite a lot. And he told me a story about the recording of Unplugged. He said that that, actually they recorded Unplugged twice. Because he said the first performance, Neil Young wasn't happy with the band. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said that he made them all do it again. He said, you guys can do better. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I always thought that was interesting. And then um, he he referenced, I think, oh, God, what was that? There was a, an unreleased song from that album. Or no, 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 there was a String Man. String Man was on the Unplugged album. And that was from his unreleased 1977 album that was scrapped called Chrome Dreams, which came out, uh, I want to say the same year, I I think, like a Hurricanes album came out, like that came out the same year too. So I think, you know, back then Neil Young was so prolific. It was like he could release multiple albums a year if he wanted to. But I remember somehow either, and I can't remember the exact conversation, if Tim Drummond dropped this hint on me or what i don't remember but he he got me somehow to listen to the chord progression in string man and if you play it back to back with like a hurricane it's the same thing it's the same thing so i don't know if string man was an early incantation of 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 like a hurricane or vice versa or if he wrote these two songs and just maybe had this cool hook that he didn't know what song he wanted i have no idea but tim drummond was the one that dropped that on me and now every time i hear it when i listen to the string man on unplugged i can't differentiate it from like a hurricane it's it's so weird 
it's the exact same thing. So, Dad, if you're listening right now, <laughs> he's not. If you're listening, if you know, he's not. But <laughs> anybody else, any other listeners listening to this, if you have the Neil Young unplugged, go listen to String Man. Listen to the the chords because I think it's a piano song, and uh, listen to it, and then think like a hurricane in your head, and the two are inseparable. Hmm. I'm gonna have to do that too because they're they're back to back on the album too. I think. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Very. All right, moving on to July of 1993, Zuropa by U2. This is their follow-up to Octum Baby, which came out. Gosh, that was one of my all-time favorite albums. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. I kind of wish we were reviewing that one, but uh, yeah. Well, you know, you know, we'll have to go back. <laughs> we'll do another year. We'll do 1991, I think. Yep. Um, yeah, Zuropa. This uh, this album I didn't get into until later in the 90s, um, but. When I did like the, it's hard. It's hard for me to explain, and it's hard for me to like articulate. So I'm not even going to try telling the whole story. But when I got into this album, and when it really like immersed myself into it, and and allowed myself to like feel it, um, this album was very therapeutic for me in a really strange mm. way. Because it's not. It doesn't seem like a deep therapeutic type of album. It's like this weird conceptual bridge between grunge rock sort of proto techno you know dance sound that they yeah. have with Octum Baby yeah. and then pop which came out like right a few years later which was very techno dance you know like yeah. right at, right at the start of that like kind of disco tech resurgence yep. this is a this weird bridge in between that kind of has aspects of both and kind of has aspects of nothing mm-hmm. um <laughs> but still this album and like the the lead track, it was it, it just it hit me at a way like at a time when I was broken hearted, uh, and kind of had a kind of creative writer's block. And diving into this album helped me channel and and work my way through that process. I ended up writing a story based on elements of this of this album, which if I read it today, I'm sure it's complete shit. But <laughs> but at the time, it helped me figure out my way get. get myself through that just the act yeah. of like of being able to write a story again and do that so I, I i have a particular love for this um it also has a johnny cash song at the end of this album so yes <laughs> what did you think of zuropa let me I, i'm trying to figure out where to even start talking about this album because it was so interesting and diverse and different this is an album that i liked right away but I can understand why it didn't catch on right away. It was very ahead of its time. It was very like people nowadays talk about this album much, much better than they did back then. Like this was this was almost too much of a, of a departure for people at the time. Um, they wanted another Octung Baby. And yeah. by the way, that was experimental at the time. So this was almost a little bit too much for people. However, um, I saw the Octung Baby tour, which was called Zoo TV. And I saw it out here in Los Angeles in 1993. And uh, I saw it with Scott Fink and uh, my roommates, Tom Hawk and Anthony Hardesty. And we all went to see him. Uh, and they, and this is so weird, they opened with the Sugar Cubes, who was fronted by Bjork, <laughs> and Public Enemy. <laughs> Chuck D and Flava Flay opened for you, too. <laughs> so, so it was just the weirdest thing. But the tour 
gave launch to this album. And it was very much like this album, I, from, from everything that I've heard and read about years later and everything, this album was just a happenstance. It was because the tour for Octung Baby, the Zoo TV tour, was this overly hyper-immensive, like, try and drown you in media saturation, making fun of the world and the internet and computers and all this, and, and just this oversaturation with TV and paparazzi and whatnot. Long before it was even, I mean... <laughs> Thankfully, they won that fight. <laughs> right. But the, the tour... So what they were doing is apparently like during their sound checks and during rehearsals and doing they were creating so much these interludes that they could do for the live performance of the Octung Baby songs. They kept creating new music that they weren't intending to and they had no place to put it. So there was a break between the North American part of the tour, which I saw, and then they were going to take like three months off or six months off and then go to a European like and Bono and the Edge said we want to go into the studio and just record some of the stuff that we've been just laying down for the hell of it. And that it was that kind of attitude. It was kind of a very flippant, like let's just not forget these ideas, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and they went in, and they went in with Flood, who later yep. would produce the Pumpkins, and Brian Eno. And from what I've heard too, because Bono talked about the recording sessions afterwards, which is which is brilliant because they had because a lot of the lyrics were written in the studio on the spot. Like there was a very like they didn't have songs going into the studio, so it's very weird. Which is why a song like Zuropa takes on like three different parts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very weird. But from what, what Bono said was that even uh, uh, Brian Eno would direct the band while they were recording. He would direct them live with a whiteboard. As they were recording in the other room, he's writing notes on the board. Like, like he would say, key change, stretch, hold change tempo and he's doing this and the band was playing live with like a synthesizer and they had you know all this other really cool stuff but it was like just it was so organic and different and different than any other way that anybody else i'd ever heard of recorded and so so i thought it was cool because i saw you know i was a part of the tour first which got me into because i you know i walked away from the concert feeling like man there are so many cool like two minute interludes while the band changes costumes Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and i was like where is that stuff and then that ended up making the album and the last thing i'm going to point out is some of the outtakes from the zuropa sessions are if god would send his angels Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite songs from pop and believe it or not hold me thrill me kiss me kill me from the one <laughs> well you know yeah, yeah, yeah. if you don't say the title of the movie then it sounds cool <laughs> <laughs> but you know what i'm gonna say the title of that movie later on oh that's true okay uh from the hold me throw me kiss me kill me from the soundtrack to batman forever no and, and one of my favorite u2 songs too and i love the video and this is the, the tour that you mentioned that zoo tv because that's also where he bono had those two distinct personas and two distinct yes. costumes the first one was the octung baby costume which was just him clad in black leather and these big bulbous black sunglasses and that's the fly yes and then he comes back for zuropa as mcfisto yep when he's wearing like this gold sequined leisure suit like like a tux and like a, a ruffled red shirt underneath, and he's got like clown paint makeup and like these fake devil horns, and it's oh incredible. It's, yeah, he always he always said it was a weird play. It was a weird alternate universe play on Elvis's later years in Vegas, is kind of what he would describe it as. But almost as if you know he started well, which actually kind of did happen in a weird yeah. way. But as if Elvis bought the hype yeah. about and if and if he had lived to the years two thousand, this you know he would have become this clown. So that was kind of what 
what Bono had described those two characters and everything. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I think David Lynch needs to make a movie about these characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'd be like something like on a lost highway or something. Oh, God, yeah. All right, we are still in the month of July, and after Zuropa, we come to really, really the album that you mentioned beforehand, mm-hmm. Siamese <laughs> Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. Folks, if we don't spend two hours talking about this album right now, it's only because we'll probably do it on a later episode. True I, that. I, I definitely think this is one that we will come back to a lot. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this is on the list of like favorite albums. Like this one is like so close to the top for me because yeah. I think this album, Siamese Dream, for me, it's one song away from being perfect. <laughs> Uh, it's just it's the second to last song, Sweet Sweet. sweet. sweet yeah, I knew is, you were going there. It's fine. <laughs> the song is yeah. fine, but I think it could have been replaced by one of the other like outtakes or bootlegs that you find on uh, Pisces yep. Iscariot, or it could have been dropped. You could have you could have gone from long, crazy ass like tempo and melody changing silver fuck yep. into the last song Luna, and I think that would have been a fine outro. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, so I think Sweet Sweet could have been replaced or just dropped. And I think the album would have been a little bit better and a little bit more perfect. So, what do you think? Oh boy, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny as we as we both compiled our lists of albums we wanted to talk about this year. You know, I tried to I tried to brush up on just about every other thing that we would talk about except for this album <laughs> because this album I really didn't have to do. I didn't even have to listen to it again because I just this is such a staple of of my musical life of my life in general i mean i i think you probably hit the nail on the head you know this would be a top five of all time album for me i'll jump in right i'll interrupt you right there to say that yeah like i mean as we've been prepping for this for if not a year then it's certainly like months i've been listening to all of these songs again all these albums siamese dream was the one that i didn't start listening to until yesterday because I, because I just I know these I know these songs they're yeah. in my blood. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I didn't need to. Um, yeah. So let's okay. So uh, let's let's start talking about the album from the standpoint that not everybody here listening is going to have the same appreciation that you and I do. So let's dig into a little bit. This is first of all what's interesting about this album, and we're going to find as we go forward in the podcast there were a bunch of bands that were having their like sophomore efforts that you know that were going to basically had touched success and now had to follow it up mm-hmm. and what that does to somebody. I wrote an entire television series idea. I don't know if you remember, Allegory yep. was all about what happens when suddenly you get everything you wanted and you aren't prepared for it. So that was kind of reminiscent and the band was a caricature of the Smashing Pumpkins. But um, what's fascinating about this album was it was one of the most problematic recording sessions ever, yet the most ambitious maybe ever um, it was. I mean, there were so many, so many factors that should have just destroyed this band. I mean, you've got Jimmy Chamberlain, who's the drummer, one of the greatest jazz drummers in the world, is a complete heroin addict at this point after their success. Uh, James and Darcy, the other guitar player and the bass player in the band, were dated and had broken up, and so that their emotional thing. And then you've got the lead singer, band leader, most talented musician in the group, Billy Corgan, is like the most insecure person 
in the world. Like he's 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 at this point, you know, he, he's come out later and said that he was suicidal during the recording of this. The pressure of it was was beyond belief, and he couldn't measure up because he, what he what he has said going into this album, they had released Gish. Uh, I want to say a couple of months before Nirvana's Nevermind came out, mm-hmm. and the record label at the time and everybody because that was on a, that was I guess was released on a, on a smaller label not not major label yet but they were signed it was like a smaller label of a major label thing and they were released and everybody told the Pat Smashing Pumpkins Gish is going to breathe right through you guys are going to be rock stars this is going to make you and then Nirvana came out and just destroyed everything else in its path so Billy Corgan then who is very insecure and very much a control freak because he had this way of wanting to do things um, all of a sudden now the record label comes to him and they say well, okay, so Gish didn't do what we thought it was going to do because somebody else did it, you know, something else. So now we want you to make a better album than what you just did, which we told you was going to be your breakout. And on top of that, we no longer want you to do anything that you've done before. We want you, Nirvana's album is all three-minute punk pop songs with no guitar solos and, and make them quick and fast and be done. And Billy was like, that's not anything like what we do. <laughs> like we've, that's never been us. That's not you what do we do. Five to six minute elaborate psychedelic rock songs that are yeah. built on multiple guitar solos. Yeah. So, so there, so just this whole thing. So that's why, you know, Billy locked himself in. And then, and then there's other stories that have come out too, which have been, you know, been backed up by witnesses and stuff that said he was having nervous breakdowns during the recording sessions. And so he was an insomniac, so he couldn't sleep. So the band would record during the day and every Everybody would go home to their hotel and Billy then would, because he couldn't sleep, would go back in and re-record all their band parts or record the next day's parts because he couldn't sleep. So when the band would come in and they'd be like, okay, what are we doing today? And Butch Vig would be like, Jimmy, uh, Billy's done. So, you know, <laughs> you guys have nothing to do, which created tension in the band then because it was, you know, they all started to feel like, you know, Billy doesn't think they're good enough and, and whatnot and all this other crap. So the inner turmoil of the band is just ridiculous and it's well documented. It's, it's beyond belief. But despite all of that, that stuff the idea like to completely go against what the label told you to do and what was suddenly now the trend in rock music and record i mean a song like soma on this album has 40 40 separate guitar overdubs on that i mean it was just like butch big had to buy a, a bigger control panel <laughs> and so for all this stuff because of how ambitious this was going to be and it's just like there's no way this album should have worked there's absolutely no way and on top of that it, you know jimmy was disappearing going to do drugs while they were doing this so they went to atlanta to or, or georgia to record the album outside of chicago so he couldn't get drugs and he still found ways to do it so there was a story jimmy told one time that billy was so worried that jimmy wouldn't show up the next day that he made him record six straight hours of drums till his hands were bleeding because he said he just said i don't know if you're gonna be here tomorrow so there's just all these all these things that and again you know i could go on for two hours talking about everything about this album but then what i i just want to then come back to so there's so many so many reasons this album shouldn't work and yet when you listen to it it's like the perfect storm of all the emotion all the honesty all the truth all the the poetry and all the musical talent in the world kind of converged into this perfect storm and created something beautiful that was loud and you know i mean 
it, it was like, you know, the, the band's motto had always been, you know, we're just going to play louder than you can talk at a bar so that you're going to be forced to listen to us. That's what he always said. He's like, we're just going to, if we hear beers clanking, we're just going to crank our amps up louder. We're not going to let you talk. We're going to make you listen to us. But it's weird when you think of something so hauntingly beautiful like some of the songs on this album, like Hummer or like a Soma or like, you know, there's just, yeah, Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is a loud rock guitar song with feedback squealing in between the whole, in between the pauses. Yet it's a ballad. It's yes. like, how does that work? Okay, I, I, I got to let you jump in now for a little bit because I'm almost getting overheated. <laughs> yeah, it, it is an incredible, incredible feat. And this is one of those, I mean, for me, I would say, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins are the band that dominated my life for the 1990s. Um, True. Yeah, and me too. Part of, that, part of the reason it stopped was because they stopped. They technically yep. broke up <laughs> at the end of 1999. Yep. But, whew, yeah, like, I mean, like, this was one where you were you were feeding me all of this music. You were giving me this stuff. And I, I kind of remember that, you know, you gave me these mixtapes of these different uh-huh. bands, like, in 1993 or 1994, kind of, you know, the first one. Gosh, I I even remember because you were seeing like Lollapalooza tours or something. Yep, so you yep, named these yep. mixtapes based out of those. So you were like the Lollapalooza mix one, yeah, and it was right. <laughs> it was alternating songs by four different groups. The first tape was Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Jane's Addiction, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the second one, Volume Two, was Smashing Pumpkins, Green Day. Uh, I want to say the Breeders, maybe. And Could be somebody else. Now I can't think of who else was was on the second one. But yeah, and this would have been this would have been right where I was kind of getting into the, like this album and this stuff uh, because I was really digging it. But I was still I was still a little bit more of a Pearl Jam fan up at this yep. point, and then that changed like a, a year or two later when they released Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness no. because that was my first concert. I saw them in concert the same weekend that album came out. I saw them live at Duke Ellington Ballroom at Northern Illinois University. And I remember, because I called you after the show, and I was like, yep. dude, Billy Corgan shaved his head. And you were <laughs> yeah. like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah. And then like two weeks later, he was on uh, Saturday Night Live performing, and that's when you saw it. Yeah. No, I think it was the same. I want to say it was a couple days before that. I, I really think I really think you called me like the week they were going to play Saturday Night Live. <laughs> like the NIU show you saw was probably a tune-up or something, mm-hmm. because you told me, you were like, he looks like powder. <laughs> <laughs> I was going. I was like, "What?" <laughs> and you said he shaved his head. I was like, "No, he didn't. No way." And then, like two or three nights later, yep, up, he shaved his head. Yeah, yeah, because because at that point, and again, we're talking about a different album, but because at that point, like the first single from Melancholy was "Bullet with Butterfly Wings" when he had short yeah. hair. Yes, um, yeah, the video was made in East Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to, to Siamese Dream, yeah, it was one of those things where, like, once I got into them, like, full blood, I was, yeah, I love this. Like, Melancholy is this giant double album, beautiful orchestrations, as, as complicated as Siamese Dream is, it feels like Melancholy is more ambitious, tries to be conceptual and more lyrical and, and crazier. And then between those two, they released their bootleg al- their B-Sides album, sorry, the Pisces Iscariot. Yeah. Uh, which I remember you getting it like a midnight sale or something yep. downtown disc, and I, and I remember the two of us listening to that, and that has so many songs. But stop saying downtown discs. I'm sorry, Man, record rent. Product placement, man. Product record placement. Of- I don't think either of, neither of these stores exist anymore. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No, no. Yeah. You're you're 100 percent right. I mean, it was just 
Well, here's what's interesting. You're comparing, you know, like Melancholy versus Siamese Dream. What's very interesting is when I hear them played, you know, when I listen to, when I break down the album, mm -hmm. because these things, these are, these are epic albums we're talking about, right. not just an album full of songs. I mean, each one of them is conceptual in their own way. Mm -hmm. Billy Corgan has always done that. But Melancholy was probably a little bit, it was probably, not probably, it was a lot more sprawling and scape. Yeah. Like in the landscape of that album was all over the map, you know, with straight up acoustic demos mm. and and then all piano pieces. And then uh, like at the time, which was a little bit of dabbled into technology and stuff, you know, and things like we only come out at night and then by starlight, you know, it was just all over the place. Whereas the sound of Siamese Dream is very, very consistent throughout the album. Yes. Yes. And I think that's why overall, even though Melancholy is so much better bigger and so much more expansive there's something about a siamese dream that again just feels so tight so yes. like perfectly encapsulates like this one sort of singular idea and the singular focus except for that one song sweet sweet <laughs> um but like it's just because like just leaping from like cherub rock to quiet today to hummer to rocket which i think the i think the first time i think on the mixtape like rocket was the first song on like this on one of the sides and as soon as i heard it it like blew up my mind and like just the the drive of that sound, the guitar and everything. Uh -huh. But then eventually, and it would be like a year later when I got like a, a music book that had all of the lyrics for this album, and I started reading Billy's poetry. And there's just something so like I, I like because of like how how loud his his voice is kind of like high, and it has this kind of almost nasal kind of whiny quality. You wouldn't oh, sure. necessarily think of that as as a boon to the music. But it is attention-getting, and when you couple it with what he's actually saying, when you actually read the lyrics and listen to them, there's this naked vulnerability that I just I hadn't heard anybody like that who yeah. could articulate a kind of pain and a kind of sadness while also like turning a phrase and using an analogy and these things that just like blew up that I was like, this is an incredible source of creative juice and it, and it just yeah it, it, it was like raw and it was hurtful and it just yeah beautiful and it, like it's it's it makes this album so incredible yeah and the reason and and you know to come back to where how we started the podcast the reason that this this album in particular was life-changing for me and this is why i'm a different person at the end of the year than i was at the beginning of the year was because what this album had was all of a sudden these raw honest lyrics that you know i mean i'm sure you've probably heard the story about when billy talks about you know he wrote the song disarm which is basically tearing apart his family calling out his family and putting abuse on the, on the world stage and putting, you know, all these other things and the stuff he talked about or today, a song about suicide, not a life affirming song that everybody assumed it was. It was a song about him wanting to kill himself and just deciding, well, either shit or get off the pot, you know, kind of thing. Um, but like these lyrics, putting them on the world stage and then putting them down and then Billy talking about, you know, oh, this album sold X millions of copies. And then he goes home for Thanksgiving at his parents' house and his, his mom and dad are like, what the fuck do you say about us? You know, and <laughs> yeah. that kind of thing. But it was like, this is when everything turned around for me as a writer and made me realize, oh my God, you can actually be honest and talk about things that 
oh my God, everything changed. It was like a whole new path. And then what I loved, Melancholy was great because then he just kind of, he got really out there and started just making cryptic poetry almost, you know, which which you had to try and decipher with like a flashlight kind of thing. I mean, there it was really, it was cool. And I like writing like that myself now. But you said it perfectly, the naked, raw vulnerability of the lyrics on this album that are buried in just this wall of sound, this wall of distortion was so amazing that it just turned everything around for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll probably end it there just because, like we said, we could talk about this one. And it's entirely possible we will do an entire episode breaking this down song by song at some point in the future. I think we should. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's move forward then, jumping into the month of September, the hits slash the B-sides by Prince. <laughs> now, we've already talked about Prince. We did an entire special a tribute to him a year after he died. I really, I just kind of wanted to like throw this out there and just kind of mention because I like, I mean, if you want to hear our thoughts about Prince, check out that episode. Please do. Yeah, yeah. this was special. Just, I mean, I mean, I knew of him. I, I heard his music. We talked about it. Like, I had Purple Rain. I had 1999. But God, I'm trying to think now because I think it was my junior or senior year of high school, and I don't even remember like what I might have said in that previous one. But something, something just made me go to the store looking, looking for more Prince. And I found this one, and I was like, oh, perfect. You know, there's a triple CD. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just consumed this, and this became my gateway into a lot more of his his albums. And through this, I would find more deeper cuts and, and other yep. stuff. But just, like, the collection on this, oh, my God, to not only have one Greatest Hits album, but two Greatest Hits album, and then package it with a, a whole album of B-sides that, if you didn't know better, it could have sounded like a Prince album or like a Greatest Hits because the songs on the B-sides are just just as catchy and just as oh, great. Easily. It's, yeah. it's so, so good. I just, I love this. Like, it's one of those, like, where you talk about, like, what's your favorite pin song? You can't lump this in there because it's a greatest sense. It's a compilation that's, that kind of breaks the rules. <laughs> but yeah. it's like, if I wanted to get somebody into Prince, I would just give them this. It was like, take this. Like, live with this for, yeah. for a time. And it's all, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, like you said, I, I don't want to. I don't want to reiterate the same stuff we talked about during the entire Prince podcast that we did. But I, I, you know, a couple of interesting things about this in particular, which we didn't talk about during when we rated the albums, we left off the greatest hits because we focused more on where the actual songs came from, which original source material they came from. So we didn't really talk about this that specifically. I think first of all, it was brilliant marketing when they released this because the hits one and the hits two were also released as solo greatest hits albums. Mm-hmm. The only way you got the B-Sides album was by buying the box set, the three the three disc collection. So that was brilliant. That made people buy the whole thing um, if you wanted to hear it, which was really cool. And you know what's funny? It's kind of funny because I'm just starting now to realize that this was very much like the beginning of like the year of the B-Sides and the outtakes for us. Because all of a sudden, you know, yeah. then this is right around the time. I mean, Prince had a whole album of it. The next year, the Pumpkins would come out with Un. Shortly after, you know, all of a sudden we started, you know, I remember right around this time starting to buy like maxi singles or mm-hmm. import singles from like the deep dive record stores where you could get like a European release of Pearl Jam's 10, which had Dirty Frank and all this other stuff. You know, suddenly there were these B-sides became like a a thing that we had to track down. We had to find them. You know, it was a good store to get those (laughs) (laughs) B-sides. Record revolution. (laughs) Well done, man. Well done. Yep. 
Yep. Um, but yeah, so this this <laughs> that was good. That was actually really good. <laughs> but this uh this this was just fantastic. You know, the outtakes, the B sides, things like Erotic City and Irresistible Bitch and How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. These are some of Prince's greatest songs, let alone you know the fact that they were b-sides and, and then he also had a couple of you know brand new unreleased tracks which were cool he did pope peach mm-hmm. pink cashmere and then the the which previously up to this point no one's ever heard prince's version of nothing compares to you which tonight o'connor mm-hmm. did so this was all like these, this is why this this collection was so important and really quick i'm just <laughs> i'm just gonna point this out because i did recently dig this material up and didn't get to talk about it during our original prince cast um, Prince was against so against releasing this compilation at the time that it came out that he was actually paid by Warner Brothers not to write write liner notes for this collection. <laughs> they actually paid him to go away and let us do it. <laughs> <laughs> They actually, he didn't want this coming out. I mean, they were afraid that he would just like trash the label about putting out a greatest hits album or something. So they actually paid him an undisclosed amount of money to not write the liner notes. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's oh, so that's Prince. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So many good songs on this. I mean, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore oh, is on yep. this one, which is such a beautiful ballad. Like, oh, God, he did a he did duet with um, Alicia Keys' uh, version of this song, yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah, she because she covered it, too. Yeah. Um, the song 200 Balloons, which was a B-side of Bat Dance, which is incredible, which I think is better than Bat Dance. It could have been on the Batman soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, there's probably three or four songs that were outtakes from the Batman soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, there was B-sides to Party Man and B-sides yeah. to Trust. Like, some of these, there were a lot of this on there that, I mean, the soundtrack to Batman was a very overlooked album at the time, too. People forget that that was just a Prince album. Yeah, Feel You Up was an outtake. That was too. I love that song, too. Let, let me yeah. touch your body. Let me feel you. God, I all kind of can dance to that song like that. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. All right. Center myself. Center. <laughs> we got more albums to talk about. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, uh, then, moving on. Still in the month of September, uh, another artist that we have already mentioned, In Utero by Nirvana. Rape me. Rape me. What do you think about this one? Well, it's interesting because this, you know, first of all, I'm going to start describing this album because this is not one of my favorite Nirvana albums. And I think, I think it probably, I mean, Nirvana, what, they have three albums. So if you, you know, there's not, (laughs) that's really all it did. But it's interesting because this album, you have to reference it. Obviously, you have to talk about it in 1993 because it was the last studio recording that they made. Um, later on in the year, in the same year, they would record MTV's Unplugged, which mm-hmm. would air right before Christmas. And that was epic in and of its own self. And there's a lot I could talk about that. And then he died the next year, and so they released the album of it. But In Utero did have uh, some some important songs, some things that were controversially raped me, uh, Tourette's, uh, All Apologies, Heart Shaped Box, Dumb. There was, there was a lot of good material on this. What's, what's interesting is that from from what I hear was, you know, Kurt Cobain was very anti the establishment, anti everything, you know, anti his success and stuff, which is obviously wasn't a ploy and wasn't a posturing on his part. Now we know he really was anti fame and celebrity, which is why he took his own life. But 
uh, you know, I remember they, he wanted to go absolutely against what Nevermind was. He wanted to do something complete opposite. So they took completely different steps recording with a different producer. Um, he did a very, it was Steve Albini, who a lot of people know he's recorded Dave Matthews band and other people too, but they checked into like a, a studio somewhere in like in the woods and recorded all live sitting around, like recording live together. Not, he didn't separate them all into booths and things. And they did something different and wanted a very minimalist kind of sound and very back to grunge, back to garage rock. And the label Geffen was the record label. And like when, when they first got like a, Steve Albini had to send them copies uh, of what they were doing, like the masters and all this stuff. And the label apparently hated it and said, you absolutely cannot be serious. This is not going to follow up. Smells like teen spirit. Hmm. They were like, there's nothing on here that, that we can make a hit out of him. Kurt Cobain was like, I don't want to hit. That's hmm. not what I'm trying to do. Smells like teen spirit. Wasn't supposed to be a hit and, and all this other crap. Uh, but anyway, long story short, the record label apparently got so pissed off that they called Steve Albini while he was in the studio recording them and said, we want our money back for the sessions that we you know we're not paying for these and helping steve albini and kurt cobain answered the call to the label and said we didn't take any of your fucking money they were like <laughs> we're recording this all ourselves so you have nothing to say you have no input in it whatsoever <laughs> and that's i just think that's just such a great nirvana story very anti the world so eh, yeah that's probably about all i could say about that in hindsight looking back i mean mtv's unplugged probably was more impactful because it came out, you know, after he died kind of right, thing. And that right, became, right. but yeah, yeah. You know, you can't mention 1993 without talking about Nirvana. So, yeah. And that's, that's sort of the thing. Like they feel sort of omnipresent from this era, even though I don't think this is their strongest album by far. Right. I mean, like right. you said, like there's a lot of songs on here that are good or catchy or, or kind of important, but as a collection, I just yeah. don't think it works as well. I think it's notable that my favorite Nirvana song is on this album, All Apologies, but I yeah. much, much prefer the unplugged version. Well, speaking of that song, what's what's actually funny, too, and I wasn't going to get too much into the unplugged performance, but Kurt Cobain was anti-playing any singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't want to play anything that was released right. as a single. And the MTV, um, the MTV Unplugged, yeah, I think they did Come As You Are was the only one. Yeah, the yeah. only one. But the album, the, the label gave him a bunch of songs they wanted him to play, and he said basically gave him the finger and said no. And All Apologies wasn't a single until MTV Unplugged. Right, right. And it was released as a single, but at the time it wasn't. So if you imagine all those people people that went to that performance the only song they knew was come as you are right, right. <laughs> well they played a couple of covers too like yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah a bunch of weird covers too yeah. which then became hits you know yeah. of course but that was I, I agree you know in a weird way too not getting too deep outside of this but their b-sides album speaking of which incesticide there was a lot more on incesticide that were probably would have been radio friendly hits that the label would have liked more than this mm-hmm. this album was very very much a conscious effort to take a step away from what never mind was Mm -hmm. and it's so funny when you think about nirvana the last thing you think about is like a glossy polished perfect recording but comparatively speaking uh never mind was way more polished than this was Mm, yeah all right uh moving on we're still in the month of september we've got one of my picks the album is live seeds by nick cave and the bad seeds and you previously mentioned the a song on the Batman Forever soundtrack. Um, well, there was also a Nick Cave song called yep. There Is a Light on that soundtrack. That was the first time I heard him. Um, and then after that, I think he had the song Red Right Hand, which was on the soundtrack to the movie Scream. Um, now, we're a couple years removed from 1993 at this point. Mm-hmm. But after I heard that, I was like, 
man, between these two songs, I really dig it. There's something about this guy's voice and like the the melody, like the the mystery, the ambiance, the atmosphere of this song. I was like, I, I need to check this guy out. So I went looking for his music, and the store only had one album, and it was a live concert album. Now, if you're trying to get into a new band or artist. A live concert album is probably not the way to go. I mean, you might get a smattering of different songs, but it's like those might not be representative of the sound of the band on the sound. And I definitely think that is the case here, because mm-hmm. when I first got this and I listened to this, I I was a little bit disappointed, and I wasn't sure if I was going to follow up and get any more of this guy's material. But there was just something about a few of the songs, and when I listened to this again recently, like... So much of this performance is in Nick Cave's vocals, and the timber of his voice is the driving instrument of all of these songs. And to like look at like his, his style and like what he is like, so many songs, especially like the ones that we love, are about like hurt or sadness or depression. Yeah. And you've yeah. got songs about love, and you've got songs about sex. Nick Cave. Has songs that are about love and sex and forgiveness and compassion, and he's got songs about murder, grisly, yeah. violent murder. Yeah. And his best songs put the two of them together, like married the two of them. <laughs> right. And the second song on this album, this live album, is a live version of the song Diana, which is like this. It's it's basically like a, it's like natural born killers or Bonnie and Clyde. It is this. Yeah sprawling opus of like a, a couple's murder spree as yeah, they're going yeah. on and it's just like I, I listened to this for one thing like the live version just the music of this was getting in, getting to me it just kind of like crept up on me and I was like digging like this rock version that was also just like mean and threatening and <laughs> and to quote some of these lyrics that it, like there's a part in the breakdown where he's like uh, a little carpet on the floor around your Ku Klux furniture, a winding cloth, as many mouths. And he's like, I come a death's head in your froth. And we discuss the murder plan. We discuss murder and the murder act. Murder takes the wheel of your Cadillac and death climbs in the back. And I like heard that. I was like, holy shit. What did I just hear? <laughs> yeah. What is this guy singing about? I was like, yeah. I was like, this is like a serial killer on the road singing about this woman that he's murdering people. With. I was like, Jesus Christ. And I, it, like, so it just, it floored me. And then that's the second song. And the third song, it follows us up with the ship song, which is this piano ballad, mm-hmm. right. this beautiful melancholy love tune. And I just, I got in it. So those two songs are what hooked me into Nick Cave and didn't let me go. Cause the rest of the album, I wasn't quite ready for. Yeah. Right. And I didn't, I didn't really get into any of the songs, but those two were enough that after about a year, I started listening to more of his stuff and really getting into like the themes. And it's, it's one of those things where I'm not always in the mood for Nick Cave and the bad seeds. Like mm-hmm. it, it, I have to be in the mood for it, but when I'm in the mood for it, I just listen to it over and over, and I just kind of get into this kind of dark cerebral place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and since then, I have gone back and listened to this album more, and I like it a lot more. But but yeah, so it, it was one of these things where like, like except for these two songs that I was just like, all right, 
this is enough that I, I think there's something special that I'm I'm gonna re I'm gonna learn more about this guy and I'm gonna get into him. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I didn't like this album, but then after I did, then I went back to the album and revisited it. I was like, oh, I love this song. I love this version of Mercy Seat. Oh, yeah, oh and, and, yeah, yeah, and, and the Weeping Song too. And just so I got, this was an important bridge to make me. So now, to you know, today Nick Cave is one of my favorite artists. So. Yeah, yeah, I, that's. Yeah, I always knew that this was going to be your pick. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew that you have definitely a, more of a, a an affinity for him than than I ever did. What I do find interesting about someone like him and something like this album was, you know, live albums, like you said, you know, they can they can really you're taking a chance by putting yourself out there releasing a live album. You must, you know, it's either you're extremely arrogant or extremely stupid, but you know, you're putting, there's no production involved in a lot of this stuff. You're stripped down and this is what you sound like when you're out there singing and playing and stuff like that. And I remember the first time I heard some of this stuff, these live versions, I mean, it was almost like, you know how we always had that running joke about good Ryan and bad Ryan. You know, that was our, <laughs> you know, and we can always share this, you know, for another podcast. But trust me, there was a good Ryan and a bad Ryan. Um, <laughs> but this would have been Nick, my introduction from you, but then hearing this album was almost like if there was a good Bruce Springsteen and a bad Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yeah. And it, and it would be like if there was a dark, twisted twin brother of Springsteen <laughs> that took all the all the songs like uh, The Ghost of Tom Joad or Nebraska and took those and went farther and <laughs> yes. went to a darker place. <laughs> and like, you know, that would be that would be or even Harry Chapin, you know, if yeah, you want to yeah. go back to it. There was a lot of like I'm like, wow. And what I think so, so in, if, in, if Stephen King's it, The Dark Half had been about Bruce Springsteen, then yeah, the other the serial yeah. killer version would have been Nick Cave. I love that. Yeah, so this album actually could have been called One High Tone Son of a Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I would I, you know it's it's the last thing I'd say about Nick Cave too is what he it's fascinating that the stuff he did later. I mean, he eventually got into soundtrack scoring and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, he's some, done a lot of that. some of the movies of note for your listeners out there to give you an idea of what goes on in this guy's head. Two of his prominent soundtracks are Hell or High Water, which just came out a couple years ago with Jeff Bridges and, and Chris Pine, and then the assassination of Jesse James by the cow, the Brad Pitt movie with Casey Affleck. Yep, those are his soundtracks. So that gives you an idea of what the music this guy must hear in his head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and he's written novels too. Uh, yeah, and yeah. He's, yeah, and he said like some of his songs have appeared on um, the show Peaky Blinders. Uh, I think True Detective season two had one of his songs at the end credits. Of yeah. maybe the first episode. Um, yeah, you know, you're you're actually right. There's a. Do you remember the song? I, I, the soundtrack to True Blood on HBO mm-hmm, yeah. uh, was it wasn't a Nick Cave song, but it so sounds like him. It's so influenced yeah. by him. Yeah, actually, there's very much when you mention True Detective or you mention you know like that mm-hmm. song from True Blood. There, these are very Nick Cave sounds. Mm-hmm. I am a- Don't worry about what 
yeah, and that's another one. I, you know, maybe maybe someday in the future I'll do another show just about Nick Cave because I can talk about him for a lot longer. But for now, yeah. we must press on to our twelfth major album. The month of October, we get another big one, another staple of our life in the '90s. Verses by Pearl Jam, another sophomore album, as you mentioned it, yeah. just like yeah. just like with Siamese Dream, uh, we get the the second major studio album by Pearl Jam, Verses, and I will say, before Siamese, before I, I mentioned how Smashing Pumpkins was my band of the '90s, yeah, but Pearl Jam was probably my first favorite. And I yep. think it's just because you gave you you gave me Pearl Jam songs before you gave me Smashing Pumpkins songs, so it was yeah. just kind of the the way that shook out. Yeah, um, hey, my bad. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, so I I distinctly think like this was a time when I was my my musical tastes were really forming, and I was kind of going independent of what I had heard on the radio or what I saw on MTV, and kind of like just taking all of this in and and what you know mom or dad would be playing or something like that, and, mm-hmm. and hearing my own. I think Pearl Jam was probably my first favorite band um, that I would read about, and I would look for articles in, in Dad's copy of Rolling Stone, uh, and that I would like, you know, like uh, my ears would perk up a little bit if I heard them mentioned on like MTV News or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I would, you know, listen to these the the tapes and the the albums again and again, really. And gosh, I have a distinct memory of. Walking home either from from middle school or junior high with my buddies like JT and Alex Dreyer singing because we you know we didn't have like you know the, the earbuds <laughs> that we could share or whatever like that yeah, so, we couldn't right. so we just had to like sing it by ourselves singing the song Daughter and oh, what that must yeah. have sounded like to a passerby <laughs> like singing the song that oh, again God. is about like yeah. which, which I I love is like. I, I think daughter and the, the themes of like this abusive family and the incest. Yeah. Thing, I think what Eddie Vedder was tapping into with that song and and how heartbreaking it is. I think that's. I, I don't want to call it a beta version because that makes it feel like it's incomplete and it's not great because the song is amazing on its own. But I think he refined it the, with the next album when he did Better Man, and I think yep, Better yep, Man yep. is probably their best, most perfect kind of. I don't want to call it a pop song. But they're most like commercially readily packaged, like yeah. popular rock song. Yeah. Um, and rightly so, because it's Better Man is a beautiful song. Sure. And I, I think a lot of the ideas that Eddie Vedder was gravitating to, I think it was building on the foundation of a song like Daughter. Yeah. Um, I love this album. I tend to favor a lot of the songs at the back half of the album, though. Rearview Mirror, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. great rock song. I always liked Rats, even though it's kind of like weird it's, like, it's this weird kind of almost jokey comic song um as an acoustic ballad elderly woman is an amazing song and the second to last song leash it was always been one of that yeah love, so yeah this was another one that i i didn't listen to again until just recently because i this was one that like felt like i knew it so well right yeah, I, I totally agree with you. This is, and again, there, so this album was almost as equal amount of influence on me as Siamese Dream was, but for different reasons. You know, whereas, you know, if I was to separate the two and describe the two, I would probably say, you know, where Siamese Dream was a little bit more like a Mona Lisa in the Louvre kind of thing. Pearl Jam versus was almost more like just a, a neon sign in a bar. <laughs> you know, it was it, it was like it was just it was, it was stripped down. It was grittier. It was it had all the energy in the world. You know, a lot of energy, but no no sheen, no gloss, no polish. That Siamese Dream was like the perfect recording. <laughs> um, this was just like a garage bar band rocking out at their peak. You, you know, could believe just, that this was recorded in one session. 
Yeah, you kind of could. Yeah. You actually could. As a matter of fact, like, I mean, this is this might have one of the greatest one, two, three punches ever. Like coming right out of the box. I mean, when you just strip down, it's like six minutes of music in three songs because each song was about you know two minutes long total. But you know, you just come out with uh, "Go" and "Animal" and then "Daughter." And you know, in "Daughter," you mentioned "Daughter." You, you're absolutely right. "Daughter" was even darker than a lot of people even realized. To to get as much commercial play as this song did, because Eddie, you know, would say it's not just about like in this incestuous abuse by parents, but it was because the girl has a learning disability mm-hmm. and can't talk. You know, I mean, it's like so much darker than anybody would could think about. And then you had songs like "WMA," which was yep. a song about his his actual experience with racism, mm-hmm. and then "Glorified G" being about gun violence. You had a like review mirror there was so much and review mirror is just one of the greatest songs ever elderly woman you say you said them all so like i don't need to do a song by song synopsis of this but going back to what i originally started talking about when i talked i mean all of a sudden there were lyrics and themes that were important that made you like all of a sudden the stuff that the bands i like now were talking about were deep thoughtful thought-provoking lyrics that i wrote about in my journal and i was like nobody can ever see this stuff but (laughs) you know somebody else is putting this out there so this this song very much yeah i mean pearl jam and 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 the pumpkins are almost synonymous you know i like them both for different reasons but this was almost every bit as impactful when i heard it just making you like kind of draw droppingly going wow this song isn't about cocaine (laughs) right yeah yeah what do you mean they're not at a strip bar but i thought east coast girls were easy (laughs) yeah exactly exactly wait how come they're not riding motorcycles from strip bar to strip bar (laughs) on hollywood boulevard i need to see palm trees (laughs) yeah 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 it's it's such a um yeah this was one of those like like the staples like i i think like we've got 13 major albums on this one but like this was like the the first two that were so obvious that the reason we wanted to get to 1993 i think it was always because of siamese dream and verses yeah like these were like these were the heavyweights um and if again we could and very well might do entire specials on these albums at some point in the future so Uh, we'll, we'll probably leave it at that um, and get to the last major album from this one that we need to talk about, which is 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 this even considered an album, really? Or is... Well, let's let's dissect that. Okay. The, well, the the one that we're talking about is "Remember Two Things" by the Dave Matthews Band. So, why did you have this on the list? So I'm glad you pointed that out, that you referenced the Dave Matthews Band, because this was the only album released by this group of musicians to be released by the Dave Matthews Band. Every other band, every other album that they would release was either from Dave Matthews, Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds, 
or Dave Matthews Band, but not the Dave Matthews Band. So I just found that funny because for some reason it's like the difference between Batman or the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so, but yeah, but you talk about, you know, is this an album? How would you, you know, this is really interesting because it, on the one hand it could be, it's kind of like an EP. It's kind of like, you know, an advancement or a promo single thing that radio stations get and it's a lot of live music. But the live music, these are songs that hadn't been released in recordings yet. So I think you kind of have to put this up there because this was the first time we heard, I mean, we as in the, the, the world heard songs like Ants Marching, Tripping Billies, One Sweet World. Like we hadn't heard those yet because those would come up on subsequent albums. Yeah. So I do feel like as a musical event, this this was important to reference. In, in later years, I mean, we could talk a lot more about Dave Matthews' band, and I, I mentioned that I, I saw them live, and at the time that I saw him live opening for Neil Young, I, I don't even think I had the full appreciation of his the, the musical ability of not just him, but the entire band and everything like that, and, and yeah, this is certainly... Uh, I wouldn't have had this on my list because this particular recording didn't have the same effect, but certainly the artist, the group... Yeah. Not, not the Dave Matthews band, but just Dave Matthews band. <laughs> right. um, yeah, it had such a, an impact on on our lives for like a decade following this. Yeah, yeah, I would even I would even say I would I would even say for for that exact same reason I think I would put this on my list because of the fact that this is a band that kind of. That, that kind of shines live. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, this is one of those weird, it's almost like the anomaly. It's like the exception to the rule. <laughs> but there's a, there's a reason Dave Matthews Band has released probably more live albums than they've released <laughs> studio albums. It's, it's ridiculous, but they really have. And it's because this is one of those type of bands that you have to see them live to appreciate. Just musicians that are at the best of their abilities in what they do, their specific thing. And who would have ever thought, you know, put, put a, stand, a fretless stand-up bass player together with a horn set and a violinist and play like southern folk music it's just you know it's just the weirdest combination it's like jazz is it jazz is it folk is it rock is it you know who knows there's you know they i mean you you're hard pressed to find an electric guitar on any dave matthews band album it's like almost entirely acoustic and it's all him without the accompaniment of session musicians too once in a while they'll bring a piano player with so it's yeah so i i kind of think that this at least in in terms of me discovering this group and seeing them eventually, maybe six, seven times, something like that, multiple tours. But this would probably, you know, I think that the energy of seeing some of these songs like Ants Marching or Tripping Billies, I think that some of these are better live than they are on their album. I would agree with that. And certainly the second and final time that I did see them, I was in more of that headspace where I did have the appreciation for them. I did know their, their body. Um, and that was a disappointment because that was... Uh, that was right after. That would have been. That would have been in 1999. Was that, was that Leroy that died? No, no, no. But I'm thinking it was like they they were played a bunch. Of, they played like four or five songs that were for the album that they were producing with Lily White, um, oh, which ended up becoming oh. sort of like the Lily White sessions that they then scrapped yeah. and did that other album with the same guy who was doing like producing like Matchbox 20 songs and everything. And yeah. Like, and I hated that album because I was like, it doesn't sound like Dave Matthews. It sounds like. They're just trying to be this commercial thing that they're not. Meanwhile, these other songs that they that they saw yep. live that I I'd, I'd heard this bootleg yep. of, these are more beautiful songs. And eventually, they went back and 
and re-recorded and reproduced those and put those out, but they didn't sound right. So yeah, yeah, I, I know what you mean though. I mean that was I think I saw that tour before the album came out. Before yeah, yeah. And, and before the Lily White sessions came out, I heard Gray Street for the first time. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, and a lot of times with Dave too. It was it, as many times as I've seen him. You know, some of these some of these long epic kind of jam songs and stuff he sings different lyrics every single time mm-hmm. so there was a lot you know there was you might have seen him once and seen lyrics that have never been sung again <laughs> you know it's it's entirely possible but yeah i agree with you like the energy of some of those songs and then knowing that that album was just completely abandoned and being like what right. and then you know he went with a pop record and then came back later on and did uh, Every Day, I think, was the album that ended up putting them all together, yeah, I, yeah. I believe. But it just, yeah, it was one of those things where I, I kind of, it was kind of like a misstep. Yeah, and it, it came like right at their, the peak of their popularity. Yeah. But, uh, gosh, I'm not even sure if they've recovered or if just the audience kind of changed gears. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, for the same, like we started this one with, you know, Pablo Honey by Radiohead mm-hmm. and kind of entering this section with this one. I think neither of these, I think, are the, the best, the signature album of this particular group, but they were the ones that jump started their career and like kicked them off. They were their, their debut and we wouldn't have the later greatness of these artists without true. these albums and what they meant for this particular year. So, all right, folks. Right now, we're going to take a short promotional break. When we come back, uh, we're going to do not quite a lightning round, but we're definitely going to start jumping through these a little bit quicker um, to get through our minor albums and other singles and songs from the year 1993. You are listening to Record Revolution. Don't go away. Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet? Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> call him Lucky Wilbarren. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. All right, we are back. Still talking about the year 1993 and the music that changed us. Um, looking at now a few other albums that came out. Um, we're not going to spend as much time going into these, um, and we're not going to approach them like the same chronological order, um, but we do want to give shout-outs either because the music was really good or it had some sort of formative effect on the way we kind of appreciated this. Um, so kicking off with another album. This one came out in March. Neil... Are you gonna go my way by Lenny Kravitz? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, this was this was interesting. Lenny Kravitz had been around for a couple of years. He had, he'd released a couple albums, but this was a breakthrough. This was huge, and this was you know '93 was a great year for music, great year for rock. I don't even know you know you couldn't call this a grunge rock album, but you know Lenny Kravitz was throwing back you know the flying V guitar, and he was dressed in hippie clothes and just ripping this rocking electric guitar riff, and it was it was. It was just he. I mean, it was just a huge hit, just huge everywhere you went. This this was a this was a monster, and there were some good ballads on the album too as well. But the lead single "Are You Gonna Go My Way" was just amazing. And channeling his inner prince, Lenny Kravitz is also one of those rarities that records just about everything himself, from mm. drums, 
bass, piano, you know, everything. He, he's a, in the studio. He's a virtuoso. Yeah. So I always liked it. I, I love this song, but I didn't really get into him until the album, like, like Fly Away and that album, like, later mm-hmm. on in the 90s and everything, which yeah. really got me into him. But, uh, yeah, I, I remember this song and this video just, like, rocked me. Um, just such a cool jam. All right. Next up, one of my picks, Transmissions from the Satellite Heart by the Flaming Lips. Now, the Smashing Pumpkins were my first concert ever. <laughs> the Flaming Lips were my second. I saw them, and this would have been, you know, 1996 maybe. They played an outdoor, and I want to say it might have been free, but an outdoor <laughs> concert at NIU on, like, the soccer fields. I think it was free because I think you told me the story before. Yeah. I want to say they just played. <laughs> and, uh, like, I, I went there, like, with uh, me and JT and some of our friends. Like, we all just met and we, like, showed up, and there were a couple of local bands that opened up for them. But we somehow, like, we got there at the right time. Like, we served, like, towards the stage, and we got right up front. And we were, like, against the bar, separating yeah. us from the stage. And, again, this is, like, a small outdoor thing. It's the Flaming Lips. They're not playing an arena, especially not in 1993. Um, or, or this would have been, like, 96 or something like that. Right. But they've got this tiny stage. And I think I probably could I was I was five feet away from, like, the front of the stage. <laughs> like, just up against this bar. It was just whatever was separating them. And, like, at this point, I didn't know much of their music except they had the song from this album, She Don't Use Jelly, was, like, mm-hmm. an MTV hit. I think Beavis and Butthead, the aforementioned. Again, and coming much, back to Beavis and Butthead, much that's how I first heard the song. <laughs> yep. But, going back to the other one, that really, like, the stealth MVP of this episode was the soundtrack to Batman and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> there was a song by the Flaming Lips on that soundtrack called Bad Days, and that was, like, the only other one that I know. So, I think they got up, the band played their one song, or, uh, the first song or something, and then the, like, lead singer, like, went to, like, change guitars, or he dropped a pick or something, kind of, like, walked by, and I just kind of shouted out, Bad Days, play Bad Days. That was the only one I knew. And he looked at me and just kind of smiled and gave me a thumbs up. He was like, hey, somebody in this crowd has heard of us before. (laughs) And he goes back, and two songs later, they play that song. And I was like, hell yeah. So that was, like, really cool. So I just wanted to mention that. And and I I don't think much more about this album, but, (laughs) like, like in the later 90s, they would, like, release, like, an album, like, called The Soft Bulletin that was really good. And in the early 2000s, they got a little bit more experimental and did some really... You know, like weird sounding and experimental, but really sort of cool, innovative tracks and stuff like that. They they kind of went into cool places. So the Flaming Lips they ha- they have a lot more clout, I think, now than they did at that time. Yeah, I but, think they do, and I think they also have very indirectly started this whole like teenagers getting silver hair movement <laughs> yeah. thing. <laughs> I think somehow they did that because they did it just because they had gray hair. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so now it's trendy. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, another one coming in from the month of July, Far Behind by Candlebox. Why did you pick this one? I picked this one. This is, okay, this is going to go down in history as one of those one-hit wonders. Mm. And it's kind of unfortunate because Candlebox was a band, uh, Kevin Martin, the lead singer, they they were discovered in Seattle just at the same time. He was, I mean, Kevin Martin was playing with, you know, Mother Lovebone and Andrew Woods, the lead singer for Mother Lovebone, who died of the heroin overdose, which 
which then gave rise to Temple of the Dog mm-hmm. and, and all this other stuff. Candlebox was actually in the same scene at the same time as Soundgarden and Pearl Jam when they were Green River before they became Pearl Jam. Yep. And these guys were playing the same stuff. And Candlebox actually has six albums out. Now, I couldn't even begin to name them. I'm not going to lie and act like I'm a fan. But the song Far Behind was written about the heroin overdose of Andrew Wood and how much that changed his life and and them dealing with the repercussions and everybody, you know, that whole thing. And then it kind of took on a different life of like, okay, are we leaving Seattle behind to go be famous? And the song was such a, it was just, there's a lot to this song. So if you ever get a chance to go back and just listen to the song, don't think of it as just a 90s one hit wonder. Listen to the words and listen to the guy that wrote it and what he was going through at the time that he wrote it and the people that it's about, the scene that it's about, the sound. This is one of those rare things that I'm surprised they didn't make the the single soundtrack. This would have fit in perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I can hear that. And plus the video, the lead singer in the group too kind of gave rise to my Doc Martens, Rip Levi's, 501s, (laughs) and bowling shirts. That that became a staple of my look throughout the 90s because it was rare. Everybody else was just doing flannels. And I was like, nope, I'm going to do bowling shirts. Then Chandler Bing stole it from me, so I couldn't do it anymore. Son of a bitch. Yeah, I know. God. All right, we got a couple other albums that we're going to lump together. You already touched on some of this with uh, Tupac and this emerging hip hop scene. We got four albums right now. 1993 by Naughty by Nature. I fucking love that song, that title. Such a great title. <laughs> 14 Shots to the Dome by LL Cool J. Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg and Lethal Injection by Ice Cube. <laughs> Sorry, I'll throw this one out to you. Hit me. <laughs> all right. Well, this was important because the emergence of all these artists kind of releasing albums at the same time. Again, it's just, it's 93 was such a banner year for so many reasons. You know, I talked about it earlier, which was, you know, I wanted to mention at the beginning of this podcast how the people that were talking about some of these albums that came out, we're still talking about today. And it's very interesting, with the exception of maybe Naughty by Nature, which not as many people know about. LL Cool J. You know, we're talking about Janet Jackson, which you'll come up later. Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube. These are people that are still active today. Mm-hmm. Decades later, it's just fascinating that they all, everybody broke in 1993. And we're talking about a Hall of Fame class. This is just an epic class of, of artists that came out. So, some of the big hits from these guys, if you want to dig in your Wayback Machine real quick, you know, Ice Cube's big song from Lethal Injection was You Know How We Do It, which was kind of that laid back, kind of like rolling kind of vibe, which was very similar. Of, it was very indicative of the whole chronic Sound, which came out a couple years earlier from from Dre, but that West Coast kind of sound was very laid back, very chilling. Snoop Dogg had Gin and Juice, and then What's My Name, and all that stuff. And Doggy Style was his breakthrough album, which was at this point Snoop Dogg was probably about the biggest in the game too, because he had just released. Yeah, you know, he did Chronic, and then broke out from that. But you had LL Cool J, which you know people forget about. Ladies love Cool James. <laughs> he had that very he, his his style was just so. I mean, I I busted these jams backseat of my Jeep and pink cookies in a plastic bag I busted out these songs like this this was makeout music for hip hop LL Cool J was like one of those rare it wasn't like it wasn't like smooth jazz or R&B to get girls to make out it was like you know if you want if you're playing hip hop because they wanted to dance but LL Cool J rapped sexy it was like it was like if you can imagine you know how the hell do you rap sexy well watch an LL Cool J video that's it <laughs> and then and then uh, rounding out 1993 Hip Hop Parade if yeah. you haven't heard yeah. Hip Hop 
beret, then you've been living under a rock. So that's just that's just ridiculous. And then of course the connection to Tretch, the lead singer, or the lead rapper for 1993, because he they did a song on Juice, and that's how he met Tupac, and then they became friends. And then they even did a they even did like some some cheesy movie called Meteor Man, some some bad oh, like God, yeah, so, uh, I remember the superhero movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so they became friends and everything, and then Tretch went out with uh, I think Peppa from Salt and Pepper mm-hmm. for a long long time but um and he was in one of their videos i think shoop he appeared in yep. shoop or something yeah, yeah, yeah. but these guys so that block right there of those four hip-hop albums you, you can't dismiss you just can't dismiss them because those we're still talking about those guys now in 2000 naughty 19 if that makes any sense <laughs> it doesn't but okay. no it doesn't all right um you know what else doesn't make sense record revolution <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned this before when we were talking about the cranberries and, and this idea of like the female-driven yeah. artist, whether it was a, a female-driven band or a, you know an all-girls band or something, or just like that female voice um, mm-hmm. coming in and you know again breaking down by the barriers. There's the grunge rock connection, and then there's the the hip hop or R and B connection. So I, I'm kind of like right there where like I I loved hearing it just because it was you know something different. It was something other than Madonna, you know, yeah. but it was like you know chicks who rocked and stuff like that. So yes. you had. I mean, we, we talked about the Cranberries, and you mentioned the Sundays, but you had the Breeders, which I think was mm-hmm. on one of its tapes, where they had the album Last Splash came out, yep. um, which had songs like Cannonball and Saints, which are still... God, like, I just a couple of years ago I was at like a, a restaurant or something and, and Cannonball came on the radio or something. I was like, what radio station are they playing that this was on? Yeah. I, just, I heard the drum track that... Yep. And the bass, and I was just like, oh, and I was digging. I was like, oh man, I haven't heard this song forever. Oh man, I know. And then you had the album "Become What You Are" by the Juliana Hatfield Three. Now you got me into Juliana Hatfield first because she had that song, and she appeared in "My So-Called Life," the Christmas episode of "My So-Called Life." She had this beautiful song called "Make It Home." And then I think you, you gave me like some of her music from this album, which included the songs My Sister and mm-hmm. Spin the Bottle. And I love Spin the Bottle. Like, there, there's this rhyme in there that she has. She's like, she's describing like a party, like a Spin the Bottle game, mm-hmm. like at a party. And it was so crazy how simply she could put the lyric or something. But it, she's like, everybody's watching, everybody's looking. Yeah. She is such a sucker. He don't want to fuck her. I'm yes. Like, oh my God, who could say that on a, like a yes. record and, and make it sound funny and cool all at the same time? But yeah, like after hearing that, that was another one where, where when I went to college, um, I checked out you know you know this this album, and then maybe two years later, might have been like ninety five or something like that, she released another album just as Juliana Hatfield called Beautiful Creatures. Oh yeah, great right. album. Had a ton of great songs on that, and I think between these two albums and the the song from My So Called Life. And somewhere, and this was like one like an early download when it was just from like Audio Galaxy or Napster, like the early version of like just downloading music where I didn't know it was coming from. So I don't know where this exists, but she did a cover of the police song Every Breath You Take. Ooh. And it's an incredible version because it's actually a slightly up-tempo electric guitar-driven ver- version of the song. It huh. doesn't sound like, and it's just like I've, it's not like what you would expect for that song, but it's really, yeah. really cool. Um, so between that, I had a really good Juliana Hatfield mix. Um, yeah. And then the third one from this little group was Liz Fair's album "Exile in Guyville," which has been said, you know, she wrote it almost as a song-for-song response to the Rolling Stones album "Exile on Main Street." <laughs> 
right. and kind of dealing with a female perspective of some of these things. And a really great song from the first one, Six Feet One. There's a beautiful song called Divorce Song in the middle of it. Um, but the one, of course, that like when I was a kid, the one that like blew me away was the song <laughs> "Fucking Run." Fucking Run. <laughs> Just because she could say that, and I was like, "Oh, oh who's you? Who is this?" Like I couldn't even like I didn't even know what she looked like, but she was the sexiest woman I'd ever seen because yeah. she sang a song called "Fucking Run." Hell yeah! I was like, oh, I love this. So that was one of that was kind of like the the rock version of these of these new like women kind of like in my life and in my sphere of you know musical influence. <laughs> then you had Janet by Janet Jackson. And then Very Necessary by Salt and Peppa. And these two were taking a different approach. Um, the music, of course, I, I, and because it was all over MTV, you know, I dug the kind of slow, groovy, you know, from Janet's like, that's the way love goes. Oh, if. Great jam. Um, and, and, you know, we mentioned like Shoop and What a Man. Mm-hmm. These were like cool, you know, just funky R&B that I liked listening to. And it helped that the women look sexy as all hell in the videos so yeah. you know you had like the grunge rock chicks that were like you know cool and hip that I felt like I could <laughs> hang out with and, and jam with and then these other women who were just like uh, bombarding me with like sex and, and cleavage and I was like holy and of course I, we have to mention that the Janet Jackson album you know the, the cover oh, is just yeah, a black, like close up of her with her hands in her hair but when you step back from it like the full version is she's standing there topless with some lucky bastard's hands cupping her naked breasts yeah um you know, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, there was any other controversy of Janet Jackson's breast that would co- pop up later on. Yeah, I wonder. That's yeah. a, that's very interesting. I mean, you know you know who would know? Record Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and every football fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. No, you're you're 100% right. I mean, this is, it, there were very, very... It, it was a it was it was a changing time for music in terms of women empowering mm-hmm. but these were two completely different directions that we could have gone you know i mean janet jacks well, that's the way love goes was one of those just sexy slow jams that made oh, yeah. you want to slow dance with somebody i mean it was that was the jam back you in know, the day. as i we were been preparing for this you know i said you know alexa play this song or whatever i, I you know i played that while i was giving reese a bath reese started to dance to that song <laughs> as he was getting the bath he was kind of like bobbing his head so reese really likes that's the way love goes that's his jam <laughs> yeah the other important thing about this video was just in case people started to think that men could no longer wear a vest with no shirt underneath <laughs> because the 80s were over you saw this video and you're like nope I can still do it <laughs> so that was that was important but going back to the rock chicks that you were mentioning you know again there's this weird you know we've mentioned this a couple times too about this like six degrees of separation kind of thing that we've had you know all these bands first of all they were very similar in sounds and and styles and stuff and it was all these cool you know these small wafy like girls that were playing the guitar that were rocking out which was really really neat but you had Tanya Donnelly the lead singer uh, of Belly who had a big hit that year with Feed the Tree mm. she had she had previously founded the Breeders with yeah. the Deal sisters Kelly and Kim Deal and and then went off and did their own thing so it was like all these all these kind of interconnected sort of things which were really cool I remember uh, you mentioned Spin the Bottle Julianne Hatfield song which is such a big hit and it was even featured in the movie Reality Bites, video directed by Ethan Hawke, which was kind of that movie by itself, too, was also the launching pad for the Generation X as as people know it now. So that's a very underrated movie. People need to go back and look and see. This is why Generation X got such a bad rap, <laughs> because it created the slacker generation. That was that was what was this movie was about. But I got to reference the song Spin the Bowel because there was something dark underlying in that song that I remember I couldn't ever quite put a finger on it 
but there was a foreboding I got every time I listened to that song, which sounded like an up-tempo kind of poppy song. And one day, you and I, years late, uh, a couple years later, not that long after, but you and I would collaborate on a song called Elf. And this song reminded me of it so much. It was almost like I felt for the first time that I went back and listened to Spin the Bottle. And it felt like a date rape waiting to happen. Yeah. It was very, it was, it's not right there on the surface. It just makes you think, like, what is this girl willing to do to be popular, to be looked at, to be, she wants to play the game, you know, all this. It was, it was something foreboding and dark under the surface, which was Oh, it was just, it was fascinating in a scary way, kind of like, yeah, so there's something about, but that was something that, you know, you, you and I had actually worked on, which, which then made me revisit these <laughs> lyrics, you know, these double entendres kind of things. Um, then the last one I really just want to give a, a quick mention to is the comedy album by Dennis Leary, No Cure for <laughs> Cancer. And the only reason I put this up is because when uh, I first met the woman who would become my wife, you know, at first we were living a thousand miles apart. And a lot of times when we were getting together, we were either flying or we took a lot of long drives between us. Sort of afterwards, like we were driving around a lot um, and kind of getting into each other's music. I never cared for her music that much, except she had this album. <laughs> um, and we did actually, like, at, the, at the start of our relationship, we listened to a lot of stand-up comedy albums. Um, but she, yeah, she had this one. So I just kind of like always think of this as like an early stage of our relationship. We were listening to No Cure for Cancer by Dennis Leary and, and the Asshole Song. That, um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still together, so anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, this was, uh, you've come a long way from just those com- black and white commercials for MTV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I drive really slow in the ultra fast lane while people behind me are going insane. I'm on a All right, then um, kicking into the the next section, and this is going to be even more rapid fire. Um, just a couple of other important for me, like you know, singles or songs. I'm not going to talk about the whole album. These were just songs that were came out in 1993 or were born there that I really liked. Um, and the first one, it's one of my all time favorite songs. It's called Two Hearts" by Chris Isaac. It was in it was on his album San Francisco Days. It was also on the soundtrack to the movie True Romance that came out that year. Uh, it was a song that plays during the ending credits. Um, and this is just just a beautiful song. I've always liked this one. I like the falsetto that he hits at the very end of the song. There's a live. It might have, I'm not sure if it was an unplugged or it might have been a VH1 storytellers type of performance. But you can find it on YouTube if you haven't heard the song. Check out the live version. It's really really cool. I've always loved the song. Do you uh, do you know the song very well? Oh yeah yeah. yeah. Every time I see it, I think of the last line in True Romance. You're yeah. so cool. Yeah yeah. I I, I, I picture that beach scene where uh, Patricia Arquette's with the kid. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, I Can't Help Falling in Love with You, the cover version by UB40. Again, just a really cool version of the song. Uh, you know, they took already one of Elvis' best songs and did this new spin on it with this reggae twist that was really popular. Um, I, I love this. And it was redone for the, or it was used in the Sharon Stone movie, was it Sliver? Uh, yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, yes, it yeah. Was. Or it got a lot of uh, a lot of video play then, like a few years later. So, um, yeah, I just I, I love the song. I love their version of it too. 
Duran Duran, a staple of the ninety of the eighties, mm-hmm. sorry, um, came out with their wedding album from this year, or uh, just called Duran Duran. And a few songs, No Ordinary World, was probably like their biggest deal. But I've always really, really loved the song Come Undone. Oh yeah, um, I just think there, there's in terms of like talking about like a a dark, discordant, haunting melody. Yep. Um, I just really do that. And you introduced me to an acoustic version of this song. Yes, yes. Which, was that from a, a Storytellers or something? I want to say it was like from MTV Europe okay, or something. something. It, was, it was like something that was one of those, you know, again, this we're, we're dealing with a time period where all of a sudden you could find imports and things yeah, like that yeah, that right. were different. So, you know, at Record Revolution. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I remember, I remember it was like an, it was like something that never aired in the United States, but it was a, like a, it was a Storytellers or an unplugged from MTV Europe and man oh man was that a good track mm-hmm. yeah 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 love it um, and another one the song Fields of Gold by Sting from the album Ten Summoner's Tales this is just another one that I, I never I was never a big Sting fan there's a half a dozen songs by the police that I really really like and mm-hmm. I, I you know applaud his musicianship I think he's he's very very good but it's just I, I just haven't had that in I haven't connected with him but this song I will play all the time um, I just, I, I've always just thought this is a beautiful one. and I've tried to decipher some you know more deep or meaningful or personal thing about the lyrics I don't really think there is anything personal to lyrics I think it's just this collection of, of a melody and a refrain that's just really really catchy and it gets stuck in my head Will you stay with me Will you be my love Among the fields of body Um Really quick, another. This is not a song that I have any particular endearing love for, but it was really popular, and I heard it all the time. And it's "Whoop, There It Is" by Tag Team. Yes, this was played at every school dance for years. That I just remember, I couldn't escape from this song. Um, yeah, this song gave rise to the phrase "jock rock," or yeah, you know, yeah. which, which that didn't exist before that. But then they eventually would release albums of stadium rock songs that you played at sporting events yeah. and this was always number one on the list yeah, yeah there it is. Um, and another one that a song that I don't like but it just it, I couldn't escape from it in 1993 was The Sign by Ace of Bass um, <laughs> right. I think our cousin Amy had this and played it a lot like I'm sure it wasn't but it felt like she was just playing it in my ear like like family gatherings or something like that yeah um, a song that didn't get big until 1994 it was released as a single um, but it was actually on an album that came out in 1993. Again, just talking about a beautiful song, Fade Into You by Mazzy mm. Star. Just one of those, like the, the twanginess of this guitar. I could just, this was a song that I would listen to. Like I would just, I would sit on, on my bed and just turn off the lights. And I yeah. think I, yeah. around this time, like I probably had a lava lamp or something. And I was just sitting like, kind of like in the dark with this song. Just and, like Lurgy and Pablo Honey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was that good. Yeah. Yeah, this was very, it was very much like a concrete blonde kind of thing. There was something, yes, yeah, something yeah. very much about, I agree with you. This was, this was a lava lamp song. Uh, not that I'm endorsing doing this behavior, but if people were taking mushrooms or dropping, <laughs> dropping acid or smoking weed in a dorm room with a black light and one of those posters, you know, this, this song would have been on your playlist. Well, I certainly wasn't doing all three of those things at the same time. Right. Neither was I. <laughs> Um, and then just a, a few little quick ones. Um, and this one is mostly for uh, for Rob Kelly on this network. The song Stack a Lee by Bob Dylan. It was from his album World Gone Wrong. I've listened to this album and I don't care for it that much. Um, and this song is kind of only okay, but I, I wanted to mention it because 
the song is Staggerly is an old, old standard. I think it's like a song from the twenties or thirties. Um, that just gets kind of like repeated and redone by other like like the band has done a version of the song, mm-hmm. um, and and noticeably the first version that I heard is by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds um, <laughs> on their album Murder Ballads. They do a version of, it. and the song is essentially just about this guy named Staggerly who goes to a bar, gets insulted by the bartender, and kills him. And it's about how like badass and hardass this guy is with his Stetson hat. And like how he doesn't care, and so like every artist takes the song kind of like that very that kernel of the story, and approaches their own way. And I was most familiar with the Nick Cave version, which is brutal and vulgar, and and usually like just like this harsh, harsh in, in, interpretation. And then yeah. to hear a Bob Dylan version, I was like, okay, that's something. <laughs> yeah. So like I said before, like like you got good good Springsteen, bad Springsteen. <laughs> maybe maybe it's bad Dylan. Yeah, there you go. So. Um, so yeah, I, I had to include that just a, for for Rob. So, um, and then the last one on this list, the song "Los Angeles" by Frank Black. There was definitely a time when I was in a Pixies phase, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. probably around '99. After like the song "Where Is My Mind," because it was featured so prominently in the movie Fight Club. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly there are Pixies songs that I really really like, but it's one of those they're they're a group that a lot of my friends in high school really liked and really got into them, and I. Ride, but there was I was always a little bit of a distance. I was like, okay, there's like five songs that I really, really like, but not enough to make like a mixtape or a mix CD mm-hmm. of them. And I tried to get into Frank Black's like solo album. There's a couple songs from this album that I like, but I, I do remember like this this song Los Angeles was pretty good. Yeah. Um, and I I wanna say this might have had a video like one of Spike Jones's first videos. I could be I could be off on that. Well actually, but, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I don't know if you're right about that or not, but Spike Jones directed the video for Cannonball by the Breeders. Oh, okay. So that was that was his first video, I believe. Oh, it right. was directed by Spike Jones and Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. They co-directed Cannonball the video. So let's bring it full circle, folks. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember if Spike Jones was the director of the video for Los Angeles, but I do remember the first time I saw it was on Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> of course, what an experience! Yeah. So. <laughs> all right, so that that kind of wraps up all of our the songs, the music in yeah. particular from this year. Um, but you've got a list of just some of the big kind of other musical events, sort of outside of album releases and outside of MTV. Like, what else was going on in that year? For the wider audience, that, that yeah, is yeah. Well, for the most part, you know, this is these are things I'm just going to list. I'm not even going to describe mm-hmm. them all because they're self-explanatory. But the listening public should be aware. Like these were major events that took place in the year 1993, and these are all pretty epic. You know, you had Michael Jackson playing the Super Bowl at halftime that year. The first novelty stamp released by the post office ever was the Elvis stamp, and that was put out in 1993, which was a big thing. I mean, I, that was huge. That was all over the place. I actually I tried to collect them for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then used them, <laughs> but but, but uh, you know, Whitney Houston's song "I Will Always Love You," the Dolly Parton song from the Bodyguard that she recorded was like the biggest. I mean, it was like 14 weeks at number one yeah. or something like that. It was just ridiculous. Uh, you had Guns N' Roses actually breaking up until you know three years ago when they got back together, but they played their last show together in 1993. Um, let's see, Rick Astley retired. You know, he was never going <laughs> to give you up. He was going to never let you down, but he retired. That was a big deal. And then, and then this one's the, yeah, right, right, right. But this last one is a little bit personal to me because of just where I was at the time in 1993. River Phoenix, the actor, Joaquin Phoenix's brother, who was, you know, the older brother, died outside of the Viper Room on Halloween in 1993. 
And at the time, Chris, my roommate Chris, and I had been frequenting the Viper Room because we knew it was Johnny Depp's club. And his friend Sal from 21 Jump Street, the TV show, this was a place that they knew and not many people had known about it. And it's really unfortunate because, first of all, River Phoenix was just uh, fantastic. He was very, very... And he was indicative of the time, too. He was kind of a musician, a very, very good actor, long hair, dark, grungy, you know, kind of... He fit the... He fit with the profile of alternative. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, what's really unfortunate is... The Viper Room, Johnny Depp opened because he wanted a place where you could go and not be seen, like celebrities could go and hang out and be with regular people, but you wouldn't be seen. And you can kind of be hidden, and that's why he had his friends and people go there and stuff. And then once River Phoenix died, the place became a a tourist trap. And it was was really unfortunate because for the reasons that Chris and I liked going there, because you could see Johnny Depp playing the guitar in his band with Flea playing bass. Um, and so, you know, I bought you a T-shirt from that place before River Phoenix died, like in early 93 and before River Phoenix died. But then afterwards, you couldn't even get near the place, yeah. which eventually led to Johnny Depp selling off the place. So I know I, this is kind of spinning off outside of music a little bit, but that was that was very, very, you know, indicative of 1993. You know, this was a period where our alternative rock and music and celebrity idols were drinking and boozing and drugging themselves into oblivion. Mm-hmm. I knew River Phoenix. He was in Stand By Me, which is one of my top five favorite movies of all yeah. time. Um, also the movie Sneakers, which I really, really liked. And I think, at the time he died, I think I knew that he was going to be in the movie Interview with a Vampire. Yep. Like, I think yep. you and He was going to play the interviewer. Yeah, I think you and Mom were pretty... had been talking that up because you had read the books. Yep. Um, yep. So this was, like, a year before the movie came out. Because it, yeah. was, it was like pre-production, and like you had been talking about, and you you said that he was going to be in this movie, and then when he died, they approached Johnny Depp about playing the part, and he passed mm-hmm. just because of the personal connection. He's like, no, I, yeah. I can't, I can't. Yeah. Um. So then they end up getting Christian Slater for the part, but yeah, gosh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I think the movie was just about done being filmed. Yeah. I, I want to say that they were. Not, it wasn't pre-production. I think the movie was. I think the movie was almost done. And they just, now, had, granted, to re, mo- they just mo- had to shoot yeah. all of the. Yeah. Yeah. Now, granted, most of the movie doesn't surround itself with that. It's all told through flashback for right, the people that part who have was seen it. Done two weeks. Yeah. The, the whole. Yeah. Exactly. Part, yeah. Exactly. But that was. Yeah. That was. That was epic. That was kind of a big deal. You know. So yeah, that's a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And when we do ninety four, we'll talk about Kurt Cobain's death. Right. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Always, always end. So. Um, but I mean, yeah, that is. It, it, this was such a a momentous year, and um, bringing bringing it to a close with these final thoughts, uh, it was just. I, I mean, I, like I said, because of how young I was at the time, I. Some of this stuff had a very delayed effect on me. I wasn't there necessarily at Ground Zero for a lot of these bands, a lot of these right. albums. You know, they they trickled down to me over the years, or I was getting them through you, or mm-hmm. I was discovering them kind of accidentally, or, or later in the year. But, but yeah, the all the stuff that we've talked about had some sort of shaping influence on my life and the the adult that I would kind of become. Um, so, you know, blame the music. Um, but yeah but it it all came from this particular year and this was this was so important this is why we had to talk about it so 
Yeah, very much so. I, you know, going back to like my opening remarks and everything, you know, I, I can, there's a certain course that I kind of was, a path I was already on at the time where, you know, I was already living in Los Angeles. I was already pursuing an acting career. I was already on TV and had done a few things and everything. But with the exception, you know, had it not been for this year in music and the albums that we've talked about so far, would I have actually pursued the thought of becoming a published author? Would I have released a book? Probably not. Who knows? Would I be an award-winning songwriter now and having released demos and sold, tried to sell music? And probably not. Like, who knows? Like, there's a lot of things that kind of converge that uh, certain things that I've done and I've accomplished in my life that I'm very proud of that I can attribute to the turning point of this year, 1993. I'm sure the next year will be just as important. Oh, I can't wait to tell another one. <laughs> You think that was big. Wait till you talk wait till I talk about when I first heard I wanted that way by the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, our listeners will have to stay glued to their podcatchers for that one. <laughs> That's going to close the book on 1993 and this episode of Record Revolution. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com as well as Facebook and Twitter. If you like this show even half as much as we hope you do, please head on over to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for Fire and Water Records. Every comment matters to us, and every review helps iTunes push this podcast out to a wider and wider audience. If you've had half as much fun listening to the show as we've had doing it, well, then we've had twice as much fun as you've had listening to it. <laughs> All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. While that doesn't legally indemnify us, <laughs> it'd be great if you didn't sue us. And as We're always, speaking to you, Downtown Discs. <laughs> stay on brand. Stay on brand. <laughs> as always, thank you for listening, brothers. <laughs>